Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, March 16, 843-661-0937. So someone stopped me. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. Um, someone stopped me yesterday and said, so you're a banker now, huh? <laughs> no, I'm not a banker. You just play one on the radio. I play one on the radio for four hours. This has been a very intriguing and interesting story. Before we go down the road of, um, of banking and uh, um, campaign finance, um, I do want to mention that there's no bigger college football fan than yours truly. I didn't say I'm the biggest. As I said, there's no bigger college football fan. Got to be careful with that biggest and bigger, right? Yeah, it's semantic. I mean, I'm, I'm a, yes. I, I mean, you'll offend somebody. Right, right he said he's the biggest college football fan. He knows everything. I mean, right. you, uh, I hear a lot of that. So um, I am a big college football fan. I love college football. Um, but I'll have to give credit where credit's due when it comes to postseasons. March Madness is the best it, that there is, period. I mean, I, I'm not a – I can't um, argue with I'm that. not a huge basketball fan. I guess I was most interested in basketball. Two periods of my life. You ready? When I was a, a kid, and I'm talking about this would have been as a seven- or eight-year-old kid, the Gamecocks were really good. Frank McGuire was the head coach. Uh, they had this New York pipeline, and they were recruiting kids like John Roach and Tom Riker and – um, Brian Winters and the Dunleavies. And anyway, I mean, there was a, an abundance of basketball players from, I can remember um, watching a game on WIS Channel 10 during the week, and they would announce the starting lineup for the Gamecocks, and it would be at guard from the Bronx, New York, at guard from Yonkers, New York, <laughs> at guard from Central Catholic High School in, you know, Hoboken, wherever. I mean, not New Jersey, but New York. Um, and it was just New York player after New York player. So, so I remember the backyard. My father put up a basketball goal for me. Remember, Rev, we were in metal fabrication. So that was right in his wheelhouse. Um, you know, it, you, you could, I mean, if you own a truck body manufacturing plant, pretty easy to build a metal basketball goal. And I had the nicest one in the neighborhood. And somebody um, stenciled a Gamecock on the back. Nice. And, uh, yeah, and my, my buddies and I. You had it made. Well, I mean, my buddies and I would, um, some Clemson fans, obviously, Gamecock fans. Um, so we would have battles in the backyard, so to speak. And all the Gamecock kids would do the, I mean, radio's not visual. You ready? The Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. You know, like John Roach <laughs> yeah, did. Saw somebody. And, I, and, and my father would get home from work, and he saw me one day doing that, you know, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. He said, the hell are you doing? I said, I don't know, but John Roach does it. And uh, he makes all of his work. free. Yeah, it seems to work for him, so I'm going to do the same thing. Um, that would have been when I was most, I don't know, I don't want to say in love with college basketball, but I really like college uh, basketball. And then the second time I became more interested in basketball than any time ever was the bird magic run. You know, I've, I've said it I, and I'll stick to my guns here. I think the bird magic rivalry is the greatest sports rivalry of my lifetime. And it's not just a team versus a team. It's there's race in here. There's culture in here. Um, that there be a, a long enduring friendship that developed over the bird magic rivalry that began where March madness, Michigan State, Indiana State. I think it would have been 1979, 78 or 79 when they played for the College Basketball National Championship. And um, and that would have been the second, you know, uh, Magic is drafted by the Lakers. Berg is drafted by the Celtics, two of the storied franchises. It's almost like a wrestling match. You wonder if they set all that up. If it was, um, you know, <laughs> what, what, what they choreographed. There you go. Wrestling doesn't like the word fake, choreograph. <laughs> and you wonder if the league didn't say, hey, we've got ourselves in a bad situation. We need some saviors. 
Um, and um, if they did, that was pretty smart. Well, I mean, but I think, I think something like that had to just been organic. It yeah, just well, had I mean, to I'm sure divine intervention, exactly. maybe uh, to some degree. Yeah. But but anyway, that would have been the second time that I was highly interested in basketball. So you've got the um, my youth as a Gamecock fan becoming a Catholic, whether I knew it or not, um, and then Bird Magic playing in the NCAA championship game, heading off to professional careers that were almost married to one another. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I saw an HBO special several years back, Bird and Magic, Magic and Bird, and it was just about how they didn't like one another, that they built an enduring friendship. They're still two of the greatest ambassadors in the history of basketball, period. I mean, Bird and Magic have probably done more for the game of basketball than anybody ever has, except James Naismith, who invented the John Brown um, game. But, um, but I'm a big March Madness fan because somebody today, tomorrow, Saturday, or Sunday will beat somebody they ain't supposed to. And that's always intriguing uh, to a sports fan, no matter what the game is. I mean, it, you know, the U.S. Olympic hockey team. I mean, there's so many examples of Cinderella, you know, upsetting or David beating Goliath. And the NCAA March Madness College Basketball Tournament is the, um, I mean, it's the, it's the greatest example of somebody not supposing to beat somebody else, but does when it really and truly matters. And as a Gamecock fan, basketball program sucked for a good while. That that one magical season of making a run, uh, they were Cinderella for all practical purposes. I they they well. were the Cinderella team. It was fun um, while it lasted. It was a lot of fun, uh, you know, because um, you're in that big tournament. And um, Coach K gave the best um, acknowledgement of this tournament. Um, I came, I had a meeting in Columbia uh, Monday afternoon on the way back, turned it on to one of the, I don't know, 107.5, the game, Dan Patrick's on, I'm talking sports, he has Jay Billis on, and Billis says that Coach K always told them about the 64-team tournament, they would look over on the other side and see Arkansas and Kentucky and North Carolina and, um, you know, UCLA, they said, man, it would be hard to beat all these teams, man. I mean, it's going to be real hard to beat all these teams. And Kay would always say, it's at a golf tournament. We don't have to beat everybody. we got to beat everybody in this bracket. And then next weekend, we got to beat everybody in that bracket. A golf tournament, you got to beat everybody. I mean, everybody's there on Thursday. Everybody tees it up. Everybody's shooting for the same prize. But in college basketball, you've got these, you know, these, um, what do I call brackets? It would be the uh, the terminology. And, um, and then Coach K would always tell his team, it doesn't matter about, forget UCLA. Forget Kentucky. But forget no, I mean, they're good. We know they're good. They're, they're not in our bracket. Let's beat these teams, and then we'll have, you know, four other teams to beat next weekend. And eventually, we'll get to a four-team Final Four, and we, we don't have to beat everybody. In other words, Kentucky's got a Kentucky and UCLA will play one another before we ever get to either one of those teams. So one of those will be gone. Stop concerning yourself uh, with all that. I uh, do pro- probably a good time for a programming note. Okay, okay. let's go. The proper and appropriate time for this. So uh, for our listeners in the Florence area, uh, our ESPN station on 96.3, our sports station, uh, has uh, contracted with Westwood One to carry all of March Madness. It started with the play-in games over the last couple evenings, but of course everything starts today in earnest, and it goes on air at 12 o'clock noon, and it's an all-day affair with games. And they do the they, they obviously follow teams and games, but they do look-ins around uh, around all of the games that are going on. So that starts today. So if you're in the Florence area uh, and you and you love March Madness, it's going to be covered from beginning to end on 96.3 ESPN Radio, which, by the way, uh, means that the, the Gamecock baseball games, because ESPN normally carries Gamecock baseball conference games, which 
start this weekend. Uh, those games will be heard on Live 95, the station we're on in Florence, 95.3. So Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, if you hear uh, Gamecock baseball on 95.3, that's why. You know, I asked a question on Twitter earlier this week. When will we find out if we're good in baseball again? And I'm talking about the Gamecocks. They had a magical run, kind of like Clemson's football run. Um, I'm not saying Clemson's football run is over. I don't think it is. But I don't know that they're going to duplicate what the – I mean, they run two national championships and playing for a third. I mean, that's what the Gamecock baseball team um, did. And, and, Rev, I'll tell you, as a sports fan and a fan of a certain team, you can almost convince yourself this is the way it should be. No. I mean, it's never going to stay that way. I can remember believing, and I guess Clemson football could relate to this, I can remember as a Gamecock baseball fan believing that when I ordered season tickets, they should just go ahead and send me tickets to Omaha. You don't realize how fortunate you are in that unique time frame and window about, you know, your team and its, um, its celebrations, its victories, its, its successes. But, but I do compare a little bit of what the Gamecock baseball team, now I'm a Gamecock fan and I'll level with you. I'd have much rather done it in football. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it to win two championships, play for a third consecutive. I mean, I would have much rather been in Clemson shoes playing for football national championships. Let me pose this question. And it's kind of interesting to me. And I don't know the answer to this. Ray Tanner had a great run at South Carolina. Dabo Sweeney's having a great run at Clemson. I don't think his run is over. I, I, I don't know that. It seems to me they've regressed a bit. Now, is that changing assistant coaches? Is that, you know, Dabo getting a little older? Is that, you know, the rest of college football catching up? I don't know, but I'm trying to be fair-minded here. I'm not trying to be a garnet glass look, you know, looking through the garnet glass. Um, it was when Ray got out of the baseball program, I mean, it it, 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 it it had declined a little bit. Not much. It was still a good baseball program, but it was not the best in America. Um, I don't think Clemson's football, I don't think any Clemson fan would argue today that their program is the best in America. I think four years ago, you could argue. Um, you, along with Alabama, were clearly the two best teams in America. Throw in a Georgia and an Ohio State, maybe an Oklahoma. But here's the question for you, and this is where it gets kind of interesting to me. Forget the, the sport. I mean, the significance of sport, I, I get it. I mean, I understand it. If Dawn Staley wins this year, is she the best coach at any sport ever at South Carolina or Clemson? I mean, I get the personal opinions. I understand that. You know, she's, um, she's complicated. She's difficult. Gamecock fans feel um, Gamecock fans have mixed feelings about Don Staley, but forget all that personality and just look at the product on the field. She's a winner. But if she, if the Gamecock women's basketball team wins a national championship this year, is she the best coach at any sport in the history of Clemson or South Carolina athletics? Uh, once again, I'm not trying to equate success in women's basketball to success in men's football. I would never do that. That's crazy to suggest that the fan base are excited about women's basketball. But guess what Dawn Staley does? She coaches women's basketball. I mean, that's what she's paid to do. Does she coach women's basketball better than Tanner coach baseball or Dabo coaches football? I, you know, that that's a fun um, drink a beer and have a debate conversation because there is no right answer to that. But but Dawn will, um, I mean, if she wins this year, that puts her in pretty rare air. And, um, and they are now, officially, whether it matters to you or not, they're kind of the UConn of days gone by. They're the dominant force in all of college basketball. Um, I, I listened to a show one night, I don't know, ref coming home for the gym maybe, and they were talking about how two other coaches believe that South Carolina is a head and shoulder better than anybody else. 
uh, but you got to make it through that tournament. You know, you can't have an off day. And if you have an off day, you better be, you better hope it's against an inferior team that you can bring your B game or, or C plus game and, uh, and get out of town with a win. But uh, anyway, that's just kind of an interesting, and I'm not asking for callers in this debate, you know, Tanner, Sweeney, and Staley. But, uh, but if Dawn were to win, and, and in all honesty, Dawn could win three or four more if she decides to, um, to stay there. Now, I ain't really excited about it, <laughs> but, but, but some Gamecock faithful are. Uh, 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, we're going to drop a podcast today at about 10, we think. We're going to try to play an excerpt of the podcast. The podcasts aren't live. The podcasts are recorded. Full disclosure, um, we schedule these podcasts when we can. Now, obviously, I mean, I can come into the studio and run my mouth for 30 minutes, uh, kind of on my flexible schedule. But we had our first guest ever. And I would argue, and I think Rev would agree uh, agree with me, we've dabbled in podcasting until yesterday. Um, Yesterday afternoon, we had Attorney General of South Carolina, Alan Wilson, come to our studio. We sat down um, for about an hour and discussed life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the Murdoch trial. Uh, in, in great or at great length about, you know, Allen being in charge of the AG's office who are responsible for prosecuting Alec Murdoch. Um, I think you'll, you'll have a kind of an interesting um, uh, laid back look. It's not a um, it's not a 60 minutes interview. It's not a um, a 2020 expose. I mean, I've known Allen a long time. Uh, we talked a little bit about our past crossing. We talked a little bit about family and, and, you know, life in general. But the majority of our content was about the Murdoch case. And it was kind of interesting to me um, to, to, to look behind the scenes and kind of understand what Allen and Creighton and some of these others had to deal with in addressing um, one of the uh, highest profile cases in the history of South Carolina. We will make that podcast available at around 10 this morning. Um, we're doing two a week, and the second this week will be at about 10 um, this morning. We got to believe there's some interest in this, um, in this particular podcast. I'll go and give you fair warning. Next week's guest will be Will Folks of Fitz News. Um, we're working on some other. Don't want to call names here until we have somebody um, committed, but I've reached out to uh, several of my former political acquaintances to see what their timing is. But the problem with what we're doing, well, that's not a problem. It's a reality. We're not in the state's capital. We're not in a major metropolitan area. And we got to get people to come to Florence. I mean, we can do some of these Skype or Zoom or, you know, some digital and, um, and remote way of doing these. But we think it's um, a little more intimate when somebody sits in the studio with us. Alan agreed to come to Florence yesterday. We sat down for an hour. Will Folks has already agreed to come to the studio next week. We think we'll have that probably in the can. I'm using the terminology verbiage. In the can by Thursday morning so we can drop that um, next Thursday morning. But we're going to try to play um, an excerpt from the um, the podcast of yesterday, No Stop Lights. Uh, and Alan Wilson, our first guest ever. Um, somebody asked me yesterday. Uh, we actually talked about it on the air. And I don't know the answer. I mean, I'm embarrassed that I don't know the answer. But somebody said, hey, how can I find these podcasts? How can I subscribe to the podcast? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I got to do better at that. Yeah. But if you don't mind, Rev, I want you to explain. Because once again, I think we've dabbled in podcasting. And um, and now we're really beginning to. Yeah, this is a serious I mean, attempt. This, we're we're going to really invest all we have 
into, into making quality podcasts available and to I'll you, say our listeners. This, I'll say this because you won't. It's a good interview. I mean, it is excellent. You uh, you know, the skills that you've you've brought to interviewing people on the radio translate to, to TV or, or video, I guess, for, for podcasting if people want to view it on YouTube. But uh, you did uh, address issues and ask questions of the attorney general that I thought he did a very good job giving you upfront and honest answers about and and you dove into more details of the trial um and i did pull what i think are a couple of good excerpts off of that we'll play those and they're substantive um we may not get to those until maybe the eight o'clock hour okay. or seven thirty, just because of timing we have a lot a lot of things still on the schedule of the show today uh but it, it's really good, and if it's something you're interested in, I think if you if you like listening to this show, you will really like the podcast, and it's going to be distributed audio and video, so if you go to any place that you normally listen to podcasts, that includes Spotify and Apple and Google and all, all the podcast platforms, there's like 20 of them, and if you search for No Stoplights with Ken Ard, it should bring that channel for you where you can subscribe and then you get a notification whenever there's a new one uh, that is published. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel specifically for the podcast, and, and probably the easiest way to get there is youtube.com slash at no stoplights. That'll make sure you're on the right channel. I, I've noticed this. So when we were testing the studio equipment, I was recording some video and we published them with some different uh, with some different guests that we had, and I put little No Stop, Stop Lights logos on it, but I uploaded them on what is my personal Google account uh, YouTube channel, which, you know, is not promoted for anything. It's got per, per, personal vacation videos and stuff up there. But I've noticed that people have been subscribing to that because I think they're finding uh, a No Stop Lights video on my personal channel, So I and, and that's, you know, that's my bad for confusing i guess things uh but just make sure you're on the right channel if you go to youtube.com slash at no stoplights and it'll actually show you the channel name with uh no stoplights with ken art as opposed to my name so. and if somebody asked me the same question today how do i do it you know what my answer to be i don't know <laughs> so, i don't know so, so i didn't explain it let, very let, well you, know, you well. explained it perfectly okay. i'm just too stupid to understand it <laughs> Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number will take a break. First break on this Thursday morning. Back in a few. Had a good friend call in during the break and reported an accident. Where is that accident, Rev? Do you remember? Old Georgetown Road at Friendfield Road. Old Georgetown Road. A very serious accident being reported at Old Georgetown Road and Friendfield Road. If that's part of your daily route, you may want to take a an alternate route um, this morning. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Uh, we got a, a, a full show this morning. Reggie will be here at 7.05. I can't imagine a better time for Reggie to join us. The markets are in turmoil. Um, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, will be here at 8.05, if I'm not mistaken, at 7.20-ish, 7.25-ish. We'll have John Decker. We've got some law enforcement agents. We're going to try to play a snippet of this um, No Stop Lots podcast interview with Alan Wilson. So a lot of things we're going to try to get to um, this morning, but we'll stop. We'll just stop in our tracks if you call in and offer up some um some some mind opinions of your own. I, I want to go. You, you know, I become somewhat infatuated. It's like, almost like the Murdoch trial ends. So what do I become infatuated with now? This banking story is a big deal. I mean, it's a huge deal because it's not just about banking. You know, um, in the most recent budget proposal of Joe Biden. He claims that the wealthy need to pay, pay their fair share. Now, I, I guess he doesn't mean um, the wealthy that live in Silicon Valley 
and have bundled and written checks for liberal Democrat politicians. I mean, that's an exclusion of the wealthy. Um, Well, I mean, yeah, the the wealthy pay their fair share unless you bank at Silicon Valley Bank and you've bundled money and been an Obama or Biden donor. Then there's another set of rules that apply. And and I want to say this. I mean, I've heard I've heard a lot of people argue that this is all about tech bros and crazy capitalism. Um, This is about, you know, risky startups doing risky startup things. Uh, It's not. It's simply not the case. This is about inflation brought on by unbelievable spending at the federal government's level. Um, I I listened to somebody yesterday who knows what they're talking about, about the the Fed fund rate, and they were talking about some of the unrealized losses on investment securities in the banking sector. There's somewhere between $650 billion and a trillion dollars that we know of and what I'll call unrealized um, investment securities, losses on investment securities, and it's got graphed and charted. And all it is, Rev, is banks that didn't hedge. You know, they, they imagined um, that they based their model on eternal low interest rates. And, and now, they're, you know, they, were they asleep at the switch? I don't know. They made bad decisions, and they'll, they'll suffer the consequences. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't suffer the consequences of some of the bad decisions. Maybe the Fed bails everybody out. Maybe the government says, hey, I mean, there is no capitalism anymore. There's a big debate in America now. Did we nationalize the banking system? I mean, we took a step toward that, no question about it. Um, state-run banks. And, you know, it's hard to argue that we have not, to some degree, done that you know, in 2008. I mean, we kind of nationalized the banks in, in 2008. But when you look at the Fed funds rate, you can't because radio is not visual. But I've got in my hand uh, this Financial Times article about Fed funds rate and unrealized losses on investment securities. And there's a direct correlation here. When the fund rate increases, when the Fed fund rate increases, that there, you know, there are these unrealized gains or unrealized losses. It could be gains. It could be losses on these investment securities. And, I mean, it ebbs and flows. I mean, you've got periods. I'll, I'll give all the, ah, it goes all the way back to 2008. And, you know, you've got uh, available for sale securities. you got held to maturity securities. And, and all of a sudden, in 2022, you see the amount of unrealized losses on investment securities just fall through the floor. I mean, it's just like a free fall. Um, it, it's somewhere between $650 billion, excuse me, $650, yes, $650 billion and a trillion dollars in unrealized losses on the balance sheets of banks in America today, somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars. So the Fed, I think, May 20, excuse me, March 22nd, will probably raise rates one quarter of one point. There's been kind of a, um, there, there's actually, Rev, um, a, a market instrument that gauges, um, you know, is it likely or not the Fed raises rates by one half or 50 basis points? Is it likely or not the Fed raises the basis point by 25 basis points? And, and they're, they're kind of, nobody knows for sure. I mean, I, I say nobody. I would imagine Jamie Dimon has a good idea about what the Fed's doing. I mean, I would imagine he has Jerome Powell's cell phone number, and Powell probably has Jamie Dimon. So, but they're not going to call us and let us know, and they ain't calling farmers in Alabama to let them know. But they're more than likely um, going to loop in the Jamie Dimons of the world. So, Dimon will have some privileged information. I don't know what he does with that. Uh, is that insider trading? I don't know. But you have a hard time convincing me that Dimon doesn't know before you and I what the Fed's intents are. Um, and Dimon's not the only guy. He's just one of the most public examples of what I'm talking about. But but when you look at 
the, the problems of Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, I did read last night. I'm jumping around here this morning, but I did read. I read a lot about this because I'm infatuated with it. The, the, the Silicon Valley Bank had more accounts than anybody in America as a percentage in energy transition space and climate tech and sustainability clients and climate startups. In other words, as a percentage of depositors and clients and loans, um, they were all in climate change. I mean, they, they were probably the most climate changey business model in banking. Um, and it's just inter- energy transition um, space. <laughs> you don't call it climate change because, I mean, some people, I don't know about that climate change, but energy, energy transition, transition space. space. Well, of course, okay. I mean, yeah. Ener- and, and climate tech and sustainability clients. I mean, I guess you're categorized as being a climate tech and sustainability client if you, uh, you know, meet certain criteria. But but I want to go back because I was told yesterday that this is all about the, the evils of capitalism. This is about these tech bros. This is about greed. Uh, this is about risky startups, risky propositions, risky loans. No, no. This is about pumping $6.3 trillion of liquidity into the economy, creating a hyperinflationary period, having to be addressed by the Fed raising rates. I mean, that, the, the whole problem, every problem in finance today, that's unfair. Nearly every problem in finance today that we're dealing with is a result of the federal government providing that much liquidity into the economy and, and that, that macroeconomic stimulus that does what? I mean, we've had these lessons before. Come on, class. It always creates inflationary pressures. We've never, ever, ever put that much liquidity into an economy in that brief period of time. So, so there is no precedent. Jeff Gunlatch, who knows a lot about these sorts of things, said yesterday on, I think it's MSNBC, no, CNBC or Bloomberg, one or the other. I mean, he was a guest, and I watched a YouTube video of what he said last night. Gun, uh, he said that everything I know doesn't matter. I mean, I've done this 40 years. And I think I usually have a pretty good understanding of the bullish or bearish nature of the market and what could. I mean, he's talking about treasuries and inversions of um, yield curves and all these things that he says, but I don't know that we didn't break it. I mean, I don't know. Now, he's being very clear. I mean, he doesn't say, I, I think it's fundamentally different now than it ever has been. But, but he says for the first time in his investment life, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what data to look at. He doesn't know what data to trust because there is no precedent to $6.3 trillion of liquidity injected into an economy and the, the Fed having to react and respond in the most aggressive way it has in probably ray of a generation. I mean, really and truly, the Fed has not, never operated or, or reacted this aggressively in a single generation and I mean, there are a lot of technicals, and Reggie will get into this, I'm sure, when he gets here at 7.05. We may ask Reggie to stay around a little longer than normal. I mean, this will be different because I think a lot of us are interested, concerned, alarmed by what may or may not happen. You've asked me several times, uh, hey, what do you think long term? I don't know. I mean, I'm like Gunlatch, and he knows a lot more about this than I do. I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a model out there that shows what to do or what to expect or where to turn or, or who to look to. We, we did something we've never done before. And, and we dumped $3 trillion into the economy after the pandemic was over. I mean, I, you know, to some degree, and once again, I'm a kind of a libertarian Jeffersonian, so I don't like much of it at all. But I, I guess I can understand, to some degree, the paranoia and fear that came along with the pandemic. 
And I understand we've got a Fed. The Fed has the ability to print money. Government likes doing things for people because government officials like to be voted in office. And the way you get voted in office is to do things for people. So I understand to some degree the $3 trillion. I mean, I, I, I thought that was too much. I, I think we shut down and locked down and, and made businesses shutter when we shouldn't have. I think we overreacted, overresponded. I think we're, we're learning hard lessons about our failures during that period of time. But I can understand the confusion, concern, fear, paranoia. I mean, there, there are a lot of words. I understand in the middle of the pandemic doing stupid things. I just don't for the life of me understand the last $3.3 trillion. I mean, I just don't. And that's about what the number was. We spent about $3 trillion during the pandemic, some on Trump's watch, some on Biden's watch. But, but in the CARES 2 Act and some of the following um, quantitative easing aspects of the Fed, equaled about $3.1, $3.2, $3.3 dollars after the pandemic was over. That made no sense. I mean, that's gasoline on an already burning fire. I mean, we knew inflation was headed our way with $3 trillion during a pandemic. And the Biden administration chose to spend another $3 trillion. And, and a lot of this was in the name of climate change and energy transition space. Um, you know, all these other, I, I don't know, these liberal causes, liberal mindsets, liberal um, orthodoxies, uh, almost a religion. Some of these, um, some of these causes the left adheres, adheres to. But, but we've got ourselves in a situation that there are no easy answers. There are no easy fixes. And remember yesterday when we gave the economics class about, I was trying to explain to my boys yesterday, they were asking a question about, you know, what exactly is going on? I mean, they're old enough to know, but uh, they don't have enough at stake. You know, they're both single. <laughs> you know, their, their lives are pretty simple compared to mine and yours and the majority of our, of our listeners. But I was trying to explain to them that when you have a society that has a gap between wage and price and a gap between revenue and expenditure, the only way to close that gap is to borrow money. And the government has X number of dollars in revenue. It spends X number of dollars. There's a $1.2 trillion difference in, it's a gap. I mean, it's a margin. And then you've got, I try to explain to them about wage. What, what is wage? Wage is a price. Price for what? Price for your labor. But that, in simplest terms, that's what a wage is. Well, when wages don't keep up with prices, People have to make up that gap some way if they're going to maintain a similar quality of life. And the only way to do that is borrow money. And that's when you look at revolving credit, credit card debt. We're seeing an enormous surge right now. The last 90 days has been the largest increase in history of credit card debt. When people got their stimulus checks, give them credit. A lot of people paid some debt off. But now people, the stimulus has gone away. The inflation is still here. And the wage just has not kept up with the price. Therefore, this gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the only thing you can do is change your quality of life or maintain your quality of life by borrowing money. Hence, revolving credit, credit card debt, home equity lines. And I'm telling you, Rev, I mean, I've looked at some examples. There's, there's no example remotely close to $6.3 trillion and 6%, 7%, 8%. 9% inflation. And I think that's why the Jeff Gunlatches of the world say, I don't know. I mean, I, I, have we broken the model? I don't know. But there is no what, what historical data to lean on to determine or decide where do we go from here. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Terry in Lake City. Good morning. 
Hey, good morning, guys. A little chilly. Hey, Kent, got a question for you. I know the, that SBB Bank and the other one, Signature Bank, that, that, that folded up. Is there any way, and that's a, not around here, to, but is there a website, is there anywhere we can go to kind of check the status of our local banks hmm. to find out what they have on hand, how solid things are? I mean, I don't have a million dollars in the bank, but I, I want to protect what little bit I do have and I've worked for. That's an interesting question, Terry. I actually reached out to two banks yesterday. Or people, Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And um, and they said they would get back to me today because I thought the same question. I said, what if a caller calls in and says, look, I don't have the, the you know $4.4 million like the average depositor at Silicon Valley Bank, but but it's mine. It's important to me. It's all I've got, and I want to make sure it's protected. How can you find out the status or standing of, of that bank? Um, I mean, if I'm a, an investor in Signature Bank and I find out Bernie Sanders is on the board, I'm probably getting my money out. I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, if, if you know, let's say you got a, just a plain, uh, you know, uh, personal account. Bernie, frankly, you said Bernie Sanders. Well, Bernie Sanders. But if Bernie Sanders on the board of my bank, I'm leaving too. Well, I mean, at least bid it in the Sanders Dodd Act. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, the, it's the Dodd Frank bill. That's what makes it um, so. But, but crazy. Terry, Terry makes a great point, an absolute great point. In the real world, all of us live in. How do you know your bank is well run or not? How do you know your bank? I mean, we've got about a trillion dollars in, once again, unrealized losses on investment securities. Where does your bank stack up in regards to that? And if you look at what I've got in my hand from the Financial Times, the Fed fund rate, as it increased, the unrealized losses on investment securities increased as well. I mean, it stands to reason. And, um, and how much of that is your bank exposed to? I mean, you've got your money deposited in your bank. How much of your money is at risk? Take a break. Back in a few. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. I would imagine the, the, the fortunate audience that has two of the, the most literate financial experts in the world in a studio at the same time. Reggie Armstrong <laughs> is a financial um, literate genius as well as yours truly. You know that I am uh, a financial genius, but Reggie has joined us this morning with Armstrong Wealth. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing great. I, I can't think of a better or worse morning for you, for you to be in the studio <laughs> to kind of talk about um, finance and investing and whatnot. But Reggie, I, I want to I couch it this way and get your right. take on this. So um, it's not Jeffrey Gunlatch, it's Jeffrey Gunlock. Mm-hmm. And he basically said, I don't know. Right. I think he's inferring, I don't know how much pain this economy has to go through to get the train back on the track. But we literally, I mean, we literally helicoptered money from everywhere imaginable, and there's a price to pay for that. Is that a fair analysis? It is. And and here's, well, again, Jeffrey Gunlock is, I think, by most uh people in my industry consider the bond king of the last 10 years, okay? Um, now, the, 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 the chief investment officer of PIMCO, Dan Evastian, uh, he and I shared, shared a drink together many, many years ago. Dan is probably, has the better track record and is probably the true bond king. But Jeffrey is, is one of the most well-spoken and thoughtful individuals. And, and, and in truth, Ken, Bond managers are usually far brighter than stock pickers. I mean, it, 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 when all else all else being equal. But in any case, um, 
No, that's a, you know, he's concerned because number one, in 2020 compared to 2019, we injected into the economy, if we look at what's called M2 money supply growth, and I won't bore people with the definition, but we, in, we, we had a 40% increase. Historically, going back to World War II, that increase has been anywhere from, from 0.1 to like 125 or 13% in the 70s. We've never done that before. We, we basically opened the dam, okay? Secondly, today now, it's negative. It's never been negative before. So these are forces that Mr. Gunlock, with all of his experience, has never had to deal with before. Neither have I or anyone else. And so what does that mean? So, for example, leading economic indicators are screaming recession. The inverted yield curve is screaming recession and a major hard landing. But what does it mean with these other factors? I think that's part of what Jeff is saying. Is Co- that it's, correct. It's, it's, there's, these factors are so far out the norm, uh, you know, buckle up. But but isn't that isn't that kind of I mean I, I have a a newfound respect for a guy who is very respected as you just said but admits that he doesn't know. Yep. And, and and he's and he is you know I listen to 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 Jeff Gunlock a lot. I mean again you know I don't listen to any one person sure, sure. Uh, only, but I find that his analysis. I mean over the last number of years when he has said. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I like gold. He's usually been right. Hey, watch out for stocks. He's usually been right. I mean, he said in January, I wish I'd listened to him a little bit more. In January of 2022, 20, uh, he said, um, you know, I find both stocks and bonds expensive here. I don't, you know, he manages a bond fund. He says, I don't like either one of them at this point. And boy, was he dead on. January of this year, I like bonds a lot. I think bonds are, are well-priced now. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Sure. Um, but so he is a he's got a good track record in terms of his opinions on things, uh, separate from whatever his investments are doing. So. So, so, Reggie, in these periods of uncertainty, yeah. we turn to people like you. Right. I mean, I don't trust Jeff Gunlock unequivocally. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been right a lot. He's been wrong some, sure. I would imagine. Sure. Um, but I, but I have to find somebody I can trust. Right. How do you hunker down right. in days like this and make sure your clients are cared for? Well, the, the first thing is, is, you know, you, you, you prepare, you know, you prepare for the fight before the fight. I mean, you can't start training the day of the fight. And so, um, so the first thing is with our clients for years, you know, last couple of years, we've been telling our clients equities are way too expensive. Now bonds aren't great, but you know, they're, they're not as expensive as stocks, um, so it doesn't mean you hunker down in cash, but you need to lean against the wind. You need to you need to to say, hey, look, I'm not going to um, overextend myself in stocks. So if a client normally, let's pretend normally, loves to be around 60, 65% stocks, many of those clients, we they were in the 40% range because of the danger here. In one of our type of portfolios, we actively um, mitigate against bond and stock risk. I'll leave it there. But here's the thing. We meet somebody today. We're going to look at their portfolio. Where are the risks? You know, first of all, are there some uncompensated risks in there? You know, do they have all their money in one sector, all tech, all banks, all healthcare? Do they have too much in, in one area? Those kind of things. But for the average person out there, you know, there was a question uh, as I was driving in. I, I was on the radio the person. And you mentioned about that our financial and all that person concerned about his bank and and yeah we we should kind of know where our bank is but if you've got 250 or less you really don't have to worry uh fdic's got your back although one of my clients said well what if they all go belly up fdic don't have enough money 
I said, well, the government's going to print at that point probably, and who knows what happens there. But in times like this, one, you don't want to panic. You don't want to just like arbitrarily, oh my gosh, I need to go to cash. Or like one of my clients called me yesterday and said, is it time to buy? Is it time to buy the banking stocks? And, and I'm like, probably, you know, when you have when you have a bank like First Republic, not nothing for or against it, drop as much as 79% on a, on a Monday and rebound 48% on a Tuesday, you want to be very, and drop again on a Wednesday, you want to be very careful what you're doing. So cash and short-term treasuries sort of becomes king in, in those kind of environments for, for, for some monies. So for example, in some of our models that we actively manage, you know, we've kind of raised back up uh, some of the, the short-term treasuries. And today, Ken, where you can get a three-month CD paying more than 4%, okay, where you can, where, where money markets are actually paying something as short-term treasury bills. When all of that is paying more, um, it's not like it was a, a two years ago where cash was paying you 0.1. You can actually hide out and maybe not beat inflation, but keep up with much less risk. So it's all about ba- balancing all those things out. Okay, let's take the technical part out of the equation for one second. I want to get your, because you're, you're, you're a smart guy and you're very aware of what goes on in the financial world. I believe that the the combination of abnormally low interest rates and a decade of quantitative easing is one of the biggest economic blunders a central bank has ever made. Do you agree with that statement or not? Absolutely. You know, not just because I like you, but because I think you're right. Uh, You know, no, seriously, I think, I think that is, it's dropping the interest rates. Here's here's the thing. It's not the dropping of the interest rates that was, that was the blunder. Dropping the interest rates in 08 is similar to the patient being in the hospital, in the ICU, and you need to get that IV in him and you need to make sure he survives the trauma. The problem is, is we kept the IV in the patient after he left the hospital. In 2011, oh, the market's got a little flaky, so we we kept interest rates low. And every time until recently, even in 2018, when the market had a little bit of a hissy fit, fell about 18, 19% in the fourth quarter of 2018, right away, the Federal Reserve reversed courses of raising rates and drops it again, you know, whereas they probably should have done nothing. And and so yes, I, the dropping of the rates. No, that's that was probably under those unusual times of the great financial crisis called for. But pretty quickly, even as early as 2010, starting to raise rates would have been the wise thing to do. So I agree with you that sub, when you have one percent below interest rates, it it papers over a lot of financial sins. It also uh, creates perverse incentives. And as I'm fond of saying in Warren Buffett's favorite measure, uh, one of my favorite sayings of Warren Buffett, you know, when, uh, you know, it's, it's when the, it's when the tide goes out, you know, who's been skinny dipping and rising interest rates is the equivalent of the tide going out all of a sudden, Oh, Silicon Valley, skinny dipping, signature bank with that crypto stuff, skinny dipping. And where there's a couple of cockroaches, there's going to be a few more. Does it, does it complicate your world, Reggie? being so dependent on the Fed. I mean, this is off the beaten path, but I mean, you're a guy trying to make sure you make good decisions on behalf of your clients. You've got an activist Fed that that I think is the dominant feature in the American economy today. How do you work around, um, not not whether McDonald's is a good stock or Pepsi-Cola is a good stock, 
but what the Fed does. Yeah. So if we take a step back, Ken, and, you know, if you buy good companies at reasonable prices over time, you're going to be okay. If you're a long-term investor. That's the Berkshire model, right? I mean, mean, if if you buy that McDonald's or that Pepsi or that fill in the blank company and you're not overpaying it, you might have some short-term pain. But if you're an investor, if you're not just holding it for three months or 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 even three years, if you've got that long-term view, um, you know, and you buy it at a reasonable price and either like Warren Buffett never sell it, or, or which is not quite true, he does sometime, uh, or you sell it when it becomes expensive, um, the, the Fed's not going to matter a heck of a little matter for a time here, there. But in the real world, the Federal Reserve, I mean, if they would just they would just stick to what they really should have been doing all along. You know, I, I don't think this Reggie Armstrong's personal I don't think they should have a mandate with unemployment. That's not that's has nothing to do with monetary policy, in my opinion. They should be sticking to, okay, we want to keep, you know, a stable dollar, we want to keep interest rates. You know, the purpose of the Federal Reserve to, in my view is when things get overheated in the economy to keep inflation under control, uh, you know, price stability inflation is really where there should be. Then I, you raise rates to cool things down. And when when the economy looks like it's draw, it's falling into a funk, you, you lower rates to, to stimulate the economy. And that's about all you should be doing. And it should be within a pretty narrow band. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know, as we get ready to wrap up, because I've got a I've got a CEO breakfast table coming up. Sure. The Chamber of Commerce does a great job quarterly uh, breakfast tables. We've got we've got our one of our meetings this morning. Um, uh, CEOs and and others there, and I think everybody's going to be listening to the bankers this morning, not me. But um, so in any case, but one of the one of the things is, fellow Jer- Jeremy uh, Powell has raised rates from one to uh, he's shooting for five ish. You know. One of the advantages of him doing that, I think he's breaking things, as we're saying, but one of the advantages of that is that if he has to drop rates to stimulate the economy, maybe he can now drop them and keep it down to two and a half to three and a half, a much more normal level. He doesn't have to go all the way back to one. And I don't know if that was his intention. I don't want to give him that much credit. But, you know, if we've got Fed funds rates between two and four percent, that's a much more normal world. You know, if you've got a, it, it, Are it, you arguing... That as many times the Fed has got it wrong, there's a chance they could get it right, and that could be the black swan event, so to speak. I, I that it just could be. I mean, you know, it could also be that uh, you know that, that a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while too. But <laughs> I don't know which one it is. That's a big squirrel and a big acorn <laughs> if they get it right. But anyway, but Reggie, so. if somebody out there is concerned, yeah. they're 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 worried. Sure, they're alarmed by what's happening. The unknown. Yeah. I mean, when Gunlock says, "I don't know," it freaks all of us out. <laughs> yes, sir. So, 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 what advice do you give? Someone who you do business with or not? Yeah. So hey, just for those who aren't clients and you're you're, you're concerned about things, give us a call eight four three two nine two nine 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 seven or or check us out on armstrongwealth.com and we'll begin a conversation uh, at no obligation, no cost. And for those who are clients, they know to reach out to their wealth manager, me, Matterly, and, and we'll help them out. Thank you okay. very much. Appreciate it, Kim. Reggie Armstrong of Armstrong Wealth. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at eighteen oh seven West Evans Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Someone's on the phone. Let's go to the call. Breeze has been holding on for a while. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? You know, 
we keep treating these things like isolated events, and uh, and we think, okay, if we can win this battle, we this over and it's gone away. But see, the thing is, as government schemes, whatever, have been trying to control their people for centuries, and that's what's going on here now. I said, this war is never going to end. You'll never, ever get a break. There's never going to be a victory. We'll be fighting them and fighting them. The Fed lowered the rates to fix an economy that they themselves broke. I mean, think about that. I mean, you're, you're, it's like the carpenter just screwed up your entire house, and you call and you think he can fix it. you got to call in somebody else. And the bottom line is, is there is no answer to this. There is no answer to this. I, I am certain of the fact the government has been going after small businesses, kid, and you know this as well as I do, most of our lives, because they don't want our freedom. Little small business, your local bikes, your, your bikes of America hate the small hometown bikes. They hate them. You know, these big regional bikes, again, they hate the small hometown bike. And, that, and, and if you look at it this way, that's it. They, they will go after, you know, first of all, they will go after your smaller bikes. These regional guys, they're going to fall back and forth. But eventually the game plan is, as you and I well know, is to have a world bike, and you have the, the world bike of America, the world bike of England, the world bike of Russia, whatever the case may be, and it will all be on digital currency where they'll have total and complete control of us. And you and I know that, and half the country knows this, but I can tell my leftists over here, this is what I just told you, and they'll look at me honestly like they think I'm crazy. And they, and they, just, have, they, just, they just have no idea what their government and what the world governments are trying to do to us. And they're just we're just like those, we're radicals, you know. But I'm all right with being a radical. There's a couple of pretty good radicals throughout history, if you know what I mean. We need more radicals. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd buy into that. I mean, a lot of this is control. Um, but, but there's a financial reality out there. And yesterday I began hearing that this was a, an example of capitalism gone bad. You know, tech bros and gazillionaires and Peter Thiel, you know, started a run on a bank. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, Joe Biden and the federal government agreed to inject about $6.3 trillion of liquidity into this economy. That is unprecedented. Reggie just said it's normally between one-tenth of 1% and 12%. We increased the money supply by 40%, and we're surprised that inflation is not transitory. The absurdity of that, it's almost like Breeze needs to be exactly right. We don't need our leadership that stupid. If they're not that diabolical and maniacal and controlling, then okay, I get it. But, but if they're that stupid, then we're done. I hope with all my heart that they're, they're that, that diabolical, that consumed with power. Because if they're that stupid, we got no chance. Back at a few. I don't know that I'm a big complainer. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of flaws. and, and I mean, I, I do a lot of things that I wish I could do differently, but I don't know that complaining is a big issue with me, is it? I mean, uh, am, I, am I high maintenance? I think that insinuates that, uh, not only insinuates, it says you're a complainer. It pretty much does. I guess so. I don't know. Hey, complain. Thursday morning, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning, sir. How are you? 
Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well. Having a good week. We are. A, um, a lot to talk about this week. I want to start, if you don't mind, with a, uh, an issue that a lot of our listeners have paid close attention to. I've tried to explain the best way I know how, and that is the situation uh, in our banking community, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, um, the Biden administration intervening over the weekend, guaranteeing all depositors. Um, do we believe this has a high level of contagion, or do we believe, John, that this is limited to certain banks who had certain, I don't know, certain uh, banking constituencies? Well, right now it looks like it's uh, the latter. And uh, I think the best way to look at this, Ken, is to see what the reaction is and what it continues to be on Wall Street, because we've seen since uh, the collapse of SVB Bank and Signature Bank We've seen a lot of fluctuation in terms of the stock price of a lot of mid-sized, small banks, regional banks. Uh, they seem to have stabilized, but yesterday we got word that a, a very large bank, uh, Swiss Credit Suisse, uh, needed an infusion of cash from the Swiss government. So that's not a good thing. So I think it's really just a wait and see uh, to see whether this extends beyond those two banks. But I think that for most people, uh, as we saw over the weekend, our deposits are insured. Uh, I think it's uh, the, the U.S. has essentially set a precedent with saying even if you have deposits over $250,000, that's the, the bar uh, in terms of insured deposits. Your deposits are insured. And I think that's a good thing. It uh, obviously eliminates the possibility of a so-called run on the bank, uh, which is what we saw, by the way, with SVB. $41 billion withdrawn last Thursday alone from that bank. That's ultimately what led regulators to come in and control the bank. John, a lot of the problem, and, and I've got a, a story here, Financial Times, about the Fed funds rate in correlation with the unrealized losses on investment securities, which really led to the uh, to the failure at SVB. I mean, they had some, they didn't hedge their investment. Their investment portfolio what was uh, kind of a mismatch for raising interest rates. But, but we look at the amount of money we've injected into the economy via the Fed and government spending, deficit spending. Um, is, is there, I mean, you're in the Beltway. I'm not, you're inside the Beltway. I'm not. Is there a concern yeah. that this could lead to bigger problems, the amount of, of liquidity we injected into the economy, the Fed raising rates to try to address the hyperinflation that most American families are dealing with? I mean, what, what is the consensus in Washington about the Fed aggressively raising rates to address inflation? Well, I think you have a mixed approach, you know, to that. Uh, you know, you, you, you will always have individuals uh, who are lawmakers in Congress uh, who second-guess the Fed actions. Uh, you know, since uh, we saw what happened with SVB and Signature Bank, two progressive Democrats, uh, one in the House, another in the Senate, Katie Porter in the House, Elizabeth Warren in the Senate, they have introduced legislation. And what they're trying to do is to impose those tougher regulations, reimpose, I should say, those tougher regulations that existed before 2018 on small and mid-sized banks. And there is some movement for that on the Democratic side, for the most part, uh, but you don't have that movement uh, happening at all on the Republican side. They are pretty comfortable keeping in place the banking bill that passed on a bipartisan basis during the Trump years. In fact, two Democrats, Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, Mark Warner of Virginia, say 
they're comfortable with their vote from 2018. They're not going to uh, support Elizabeth Warren's bill. So, uh, you know, I said twice, say you have a mixed bag there, but you certainly don't have momentum to pass that kind of legislation right now, at least the way things stand today. Interesting. Uh, one of the stories that broke uh, a couple of days ago, and I think was um, a big, big news story yesterday, this issue with a drone in Russia. I saw a statistic yesterday, John, that I found very interesting. In March, 9% of Republican voters believed we were too involved in Ukraine. Today, that number's north of 40%. Um, you know, the, the liberal Democrats have always been a little more dovish than the Republicans. Um, what, what do we make of that number of Republican voters who aren't enamored with our situation in Ukraine and then Russia aggressively shoots down a drone? Well, I find it very interesting, and obviously you do too, you know, being um, involved in politics for as long as you were involved in politics, Ken. The change in the Republican Party as it relates to national security issues, uh, the America first strand that now exists in the Republican Party, uh, it is growing. It has grown. Uh, I think that in Washington itself, the policymakers, the lawmakers, uh, it is not extended to Washington. I think it's really, you know, what we essentially would call the rank and file, uh, but it is not extended to lawmakers. That's why you still have a strong support for continuing to support Ukraine in the Republican Party, in the House and the Senate. Uh, now there are, you know, about a dozen House members who are Republicans that are very much against that. You have maybe one uh, Republican that I can think of in the Senate. That's Josh Hawley, who's against supporting continuing to support ukraine but aside from that uh you have strong bipartisan support but i think it's interesting that interview if you caught it or talked about it with that ron DeSantis uh did this week i think that he uh recognizes this strand that exists right now in the republican party and there really is no daylight i don't see between the approach that donald trump would have towards uh, the war in ukraine and the approach that ron DeSantis would have towards the war in ukraine uh, and I think that's the way he wants it. He doesn't want to have any daylight between their two approaches. What do we make of Trump visiting in Iowa? Well, I think that he lost Iowa in 2016, not by much, but he lost it to Ted Cruz in 2016. He doesn't want to lose it again uh, because, you know, it, it frames a narrative. And if you win Iowa, you do get momentum. And I think that was the reason why he went there a few days after Ron DeSantis went there. Uh, and he went to Davenport, Iowa. He'll be back there uh, quite a bit because uh, unlike what we see on the Democratic side, uh, the race for the Republican nomination in 2024 continues to be starting with Iowa. And so uh, later this week, uh, tomorrow, actually, you have uh, Mike Pence visiting Iowa. So it's it remains a state that's very important on the Republican side. Uh, and Donald Trump recognizes that. And we'll have to wait and see, you know, in terms of uh, how things ultimately pan out in terms of who wins that state. It's going to be uh, a little less than a year from now. We'll know the answer to that question. And, and John, it looks like last question. I want to be very respectful of your time. And thank you. John Decker is great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, joins us every Thursday morning. Um, Biden on the West Coast seems more like a a campaign event than than a um, a presidential visit. Oh, I agree. This is a setting 
things up for an announcement soon. I don't have an exact date, Kim, but an announcement soon from Biden that he's going to run for another four-year term as president. What's he been doing out on the West Coast? Well, he's back in the U.S. now. I'm back in the U.S., back in Washington now. But uh, you're laughing at that because you, because it sounds like California is not a part of the U.S. Exactly. So he's back in Washington. He's, he's back in Washington now. But what was he doing out there? He was counting all of his legislative accomplishments that he's had over the course of the past two years. Uh, yesterday, it was talking about the Inflation Reduction Act and bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. Uh, but he's also been doing that all important fundraising out in California and also in Las Vegas yesterday. So it does have uh, the feel of setting up himself for announcing he's going to run for uh, reelection. Uh, it will surprise me if he doesn't run for reelection. I think that uh, it's just a matter of when he announces, not if he announces. Very well explained. John, thank you for your time. Have a great day and a great weekend, sir. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John Decker gives kind of an inside-the-beltway perspective on, on politics. Um, didn't quite give me the answer on the Fed's fund rate and the correlation of unrealized losses uh, on investment securities. Talk more about the banking bill. And I guess if you're in Washington, everything is policy. You know, I mean, that's the dominant theory. That's what, they I mean, do. what does Congress think about this? What does, you know, um, what does the, the president think about about that? I am far more interested in the effects on the, the average citizen. And, I mean, I'm a, you know, Reggie and I talked a little bit off the air. Don't want to divulge. I mean, some of that's for public edification. Some Reggie would probably not want repeated. But I think Reggie would be very comfortable with me saying that he pretty much agrees with Gunlock. You know, this is unprecedented. We are in uncharted waters. There is no example in, in human history, Reb, of having this much liquidity made available to a, an economy. I mean, once again, the perfect storm, you're, you're strangling production as well. So you increase the liquidity, you slow down the production, and you tell me inflation is going to be transitory, that there is no conceivable way anybody of any understanding. I mean, if you've got any understanding of the economy, you can't believe that. I mean, you just simply cannot believe that. And this goes back to Breeze's kind of mindset of control, you know, control, 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 control. You ever heard of the golden rule? Who has the gold rules? And if the government doles out money, that they are in control. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, it's amazing. I like the way he says, America first. But have you ever tried to save a drowning man? You I'm jump not. in the water. You jump in the water and you're trying to save him. If you're not strong and know what you're doing, that drowning man will drown you. So the way I look at it is if America's not strong, the world collapses, basically. It goes into chaos. So we've got to make sure Americans strong, and and the banks are just doing what the government tells them to do. I mean, they got all this money, they invested it in what they wanted, but that wasn't good enough. They had to go into this DEI, ESG, all that. So they had nowhere to invest until they got all this stuff in line. So they have all this extra money. They put it in T bills. How all that works, I don't know. I'm, I played golf with a bank uh, board member in Hartsville back in 2000, 2001, when they were pushing all this, you know, money for housing. 
And they, he said the regulators came down and told them that if they didn't loan money to people that couldn't afford the housing, that they would not be allowed to grow. And they said, no, thank you. We're a local, you know, hometown bank. We, we help our people out, and we're not interested in growing. Well, that bank doesn't exist no more, but that's the point. It didn't go under because of the housing crisis. And and people keep telling me, well, we need to go to the gold standard. They have suppressed gold. You know what it would take just for our debt on gold? The United States would have to hold 100,000 tons of gold at $10,000 an ounce just to cover our debt. And And they've got a a blueprint for the budget. You know, they keep talking about the budget. I watched that hearing yesterday. They can take 2019's budget. They already have a blueprint. It was 4.8 or $4.9 trillion. And put that in place, and they'll balance the budget immediately and and go from there. I mean, that lady kept talking about they were going to cut $3 trillion off the deficit. But the, the first year's Deficit was 1.2, the second 1.6, the third 1.8. And she kept saying, well, at the end of 10 years, Congress never does a 10-year budget. It changes every damn year. But yet they're going to save $10 trillion, $3 trillion over 10 years. So they just take the 2019 budget, plug it in. I think the economy was doing pretty good in 2019. And just take that haircut. And go from there. Just say, okay, this is the money you got to deal with. Go with it. Whether you have to lay people off, whatever, so be it. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. But but still, there's nothing addressing the debt. We we still got a gap. I mean, we've got a revenue expended. Let's say we balance the budget tomorrow. There's still $33 trillion. There's $32 trillion sitting out there. That has to be dealt with at some point in time, unless we believe in modern monetary theory. I mean, we say we don't believe in that. We say it's poppycock and nonsense. But in, in all reality, that's what we're practicing. I mean, that's how we're financing the economy. I understand what Joe's saying about the 2019 budget. And you cut spending and you balance the budget. But what do you do about the $32 trillion in debt? I mean, the cost to service that debt is going to become more and more and more expensive. Why? Because the Fed is going to have to raise rates. Why? Because of hyperinflation. Why? Because we injected 40% more money supply than we ever have in human history. I mean, it goes back to what I believe. And and once again, I'm not arguing with Joe. I'm not arguing with Breeze. I'm not arguing with Reggie. I believe everything, every point they made is valid. But, But we have a generation of economic blunder. How do you work that through the system without some pain? It's almost like we, we admit that we did it wrong for a decade. But we want to not pay a price for making as grave an error as we did about monetary policy. I mean, the Fed blew it. I, I don't disagree with Reggie. In 08, the Fed did what it had to do. You got somebody bring, you, you bring somebody to the emergency room. They've been in a terrible automobile accident. They're, they're near death. You do what you got to do. I mean, you, you do whatever it takes to keep that person alive. But at some point in time, that person gets in a wheelchair. At some point in time, that person gets on crutches. 
At some point in time, that person stands on their own. At some point in time, that person checks out of the hospital and goes home. We kept the same monetary policy in place when the person got in the hospital as when they left the hospital. And we continued to quantitative ease. We continued to inject and buy mortgage-backed securities and buy T-bills and, and allow the government to, to spend money it didn't have, incur debt. The Fed would buy that debt with money they don't have. And the next thing you know, you got a $9 trillion balance sheet of the Fed. You got a $32 trillion federal deficit, and you've got to raise interest rates. And once you start raising interest rates, the economy begins to collapse. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's far worse than damned if you do and damned if you don't. And we believe we can make that many mistakes relating to monetary policy and, and kind of thread the needle and get out of this thing without a whole lot. No, there is no human way possible. We can get through this without carnage. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, we owe somebody a Motown song today at 9.05, right? Uh, that's right. They said they were tired of yeah. that white boy music. They wanted some uh, Motown <laughs> music. Am I right? That is true. I mean, am I misstating the fact? Uh, okay. Pretty much. That's you may, may be paraphrasing a little bit. Well, I mean, but... I, yeah, we're in the business of paraphrasing. Playing yeah. loose and fast <laughs> is what talk radio is all about. I, I just say it this way. We, ha we had a request uh, for some a certain music style yesterday. Uh in the nine o'clock hour from a caller so we're happy to oblige we're here to it's please a good, it's a good idea that's why we do this job for the ratings and the revenue i thought one of uh, john decker's comments uh, was interesting when he's talking about basically the changing landscape i guess you could say in the republican party and the amount of typical republican voters that are now skeptical of some of these foreign interventions we're, we're, we're uh, the hippie we're the hippie pacifist now it's just interesting <laughs> how things have I would say changed or at least evolved. Well, I mean, you, you remember a couple of weeks ago when I went on this, I mean, I'd read a lot about it, try to better understand it. Uh, the presidentials uh, will start making their way into South Carolina. I say the, pre the presidential campaigns will start making their way into South Carolina. Uh, Ron DeSantis um, kind of created a bit of a brouhaha by saying territorial dispute. I mean, there's no doubt about it that the Republican Party has this America first strain within that is far more non-interventionist. I don't think it's isolationist, but it's far, um, far more non-interventionist. That's a weird way to say less interventionist. <laughs> but, um, but but no, the no, in March, nine percent of Republican voters believe we were doing too much in Ukraine. Today, that's numbers north of forty percent. So so there's been an evolution, no question about it. But the point I've tried to make, Revan, and I hope I can articulate this in a, in a way that's understandable and reasonable, and and to be part of the mainstream conversation. Neoconservatism, to me, b became almost an infatuation. And I think the reason that neoconservatism got a free pass was because of the, the, the moral end to the Second World War. I mean, America had a very neoconservative foreign policy as a result of intervening in the, in the Second World War. Well, it, we, we were revered. We were rightfully so. I mean, we stopped Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. Uh, the, the, the moral and ethical conclusion to the Second World War included the defeat of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler put a bullet in his head. But, but, but neoconservatism doesn't deserve a lifetime pass. There has to be an examination of our policy, foreign policy. You know, I've talked a lot about banking recently, and you've said it. I mean, I can talk about banking and business because I've lived it. I understand it in the first person. I didn't go to a seminar. And they gave me a, a diet Pepsi and an apple and a pimento cheese sandwich. 
but but in foreign policy, that that's all I know. All I know is what I read about Russia, what I read about China, what I read about about Taiwan and Ukraine. I don't know anything to be true. I mean, historians and academics and and the media to some degree have informed me about the um, the situation in Russia and Ukraine. Um, I understand the banking and business world because I've lived it. I didn't read about that, but but I'm skeptical. I mean, I'm highly skeptical of our foreign policy. But because I think, once again, that the neoconservatives believe that they don't, you shouldn't challenge anything they say because look at what happened to the Reagan, you know what I mean, and the Cold War. And no, I think we always need to examine where, where we stand as a party on whatever issue is relevant and important. And there is a divide in the Republican Party on foreign policy. And I think Ukraine is a very interesting factor in this presidential campaign But because, once again, Trump is kind of non-interventionist. It seems DeSantis is trying to, uh, you know, court those same voters by being a bit um, less intervening than uh, Mike Pence. I mean, I got something Pence said here. I know we got a guest, and we'll get to Drew in, in two seconds. This I'd love to get Drew's take on on this. But, um, I mean, Pence said, and this sounds like the typical neocon, uh, and, and I mean that respectfully. Uh, he says, and I quote, um, the U.S. is paying the Ukrainians to fight Russia so we won't have to fight Russians ourselves. Talk of nuclear war is a bullying tactic. There is no room for Putin apologist in the Republican Party. I'm not a Putin apologist. I, I'm not a Russian sympathizer, but but I don't believe there are angels in wars. I think America is relatively good. I think Russia is relatively bad. But I think you've got to be honest and say, hey, NATO went knocking on Russia's door, and Putin ain't the kind of guy that just say, you know, um, there's nothing I can do about this. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman, is with us. Drew, you heard me ramble a bit. I don't want to put you on the spot, but there is a divide within the ranks of the Republican Party uh, in relation to foreign policy. Well, you know, I would I would take it even a step further than that, uh, Ken. You know, there's a divide in the conservative movement, and has been for, for decades, generations, you know, over uh, foreign policy, what degree of interventionism makes sense, doesn't make sense. A healthy dose of skepticism is, you know, always, I think, ap- uh, applicable, uh, necessary when you're talking about your, your your nation's, your finances, treasure, blood, et cetera. Uh, this is the kind of thing you always need to examine. Uh, I think, uh, you know, neoconservatism, uh, if you will, got a pass for a long time uh, because, one, uh, it did jive, obviously, with our goals in World War II. It jived with our goals after World War II. We defeated Nazism, but then we had the rise of communism because, you know, uh, in my opinion, you know, certain people didn't let George Patton finish the job. But, you know, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, you know, but I think it's um, it is uh, it's healthy to examine how we're spending our money. I think as you look at so the, the polls that you referenced a minute ago, uh, that doesn't mean that those people who think that we're doing too much think that we shouldn't do anything at all. Correct. So in other words. It's, it's possible to fall off a horse on either side. You know, it's kind of like Calvinism and Armenianism. You can go extreme in one direction and extreme in the other direction. I mean, you know, so what is in our, you know, our, our national foreign policy ought to be oriented around our national best interest. You know, so if you want to call that America first or, you know, whatever label you want to give it, you know, what makes the most sense for the United States of America and the average citizen in our country and our financial security, our economic security, the security of our liberties, and our, you know, foreign policy security uh, here in this country. And that's the kind of thing that circumstances on the ground change all the time, need to be reexamined. The world changes fast. It changes at an even faster pace, it seems, every year. 
uh, you know, since, you know, everything moved online and, you know, we're, we're not just moving into obviously the computer age, but we're moving into the, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the super computer age now, you know, where artificial intelligence and so forth. I mean, these things demand a healthy dose of skepticism. And just because you're skeptical and you want to look at something and ask the question doesn't mean that you're a problem. It just means that, you know, you've got half a dose of common sense. You want to make sure that what we're doing is the right thing. But, but Drew, when you look at I mean, let's uh, not just foreign policy, but some of the other issues, domestic issues where there's a, a, a pretty disagreeable point or two within within the party. Why have we and I'm guilty of this. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I have allowed myself to become divided amongst other Republicans that I share a lot of values with. And in other words, I've been labeled one thing within the party. And I've tried to label somebody else, something else within within the party. Here's what I've gathered, and I think you'll agree. There ain't enough me and it ain't enough of y'all, whoever y'all is, to beat Democrats at the ballot box. We've got to coalesce around some of these commonalities and, and things we do firmly and sincerely believe in. Is that a fair analysis? It's certainly 100% fair. And I say this all the time. You know, I think if we all sat around collectively, that we all Republicans, you consider ourselves Republicans, you conservatives, and looked at everything that we have in our platform, we would probably all agree on 95% of everything that's in there. But now while we might disagree from day to day over which thing is the number one priority for us individually, and that has a lot to do with the last tax bill we got, the last pothole we ran over, or the last thing we saw on Fox News on some other side of the country that you know ticked us off and we wanna make sure it doesn't happen here. You know, Those priorities are different for different people. Uh, so I think sometimes, uh, and not just sometimes, a lot of times. And, you know, of course, candidates can aggravate this in primaries because they're all jockeying, trying to win and looking for different angles. Uh, sometimes, you know, we will let those differences in priorities or sometimes even differences over how we want to accomplish the goals and the policies that we have in our platform divide us much more than it should. And at the end of the day, politics is about math. You got a winner, you got a loser. Losers don't get to make policy. That's the way this works. Uh, and after primaries are over, our job as a party anyway, my job as the chairman of the Republican Party committee is to go and win the campaigns in November once we have a nominee. Drew, when we try to win campaigns, I mean, uh, organization, voter turnout's a big part of that. Mm-hmm. I want to get your take on this. Uh, because of the job I do, I have to read a lot. And um, I try to understand, I highlight, I take stories, I overlap with other stories. I was reading something in Real Clear Politics a couple of uh, several days ago, knowing that you were coming on the show about the private financing of elections, and and the Democrats have somewhere north of a billion dollars on hand. This is according to public records to basically hire partisan workers to work in some states with local and state boards, uh, basically to influence yeah. the outcome of an election as we traditionally yeah. organize. Or are we outmatched? Do we have to begin to consider a different way, way, way to meet what, what has become normalized in, in winning elections on election day? Or election period, I guess, is a better way to explain it. Well, the short answer is yes, but that's, that's the answer all the time. In other words, this is, it's just like warfare. It's just like, you know, football. You know, I mean, you have uh, constantly changing philosophies, you know, an emphasis on defense here. And then that promotes changes in offense there, et cetera. It's the same thing in politics. And that's a process that we're going through right now. You know, Democrats uh, have found themselves in a situation where, hey, when we play by the rules too much, it makes it more difficult for us to win. What should we do? Well, let's go finance 
you know, uh, raise a lot of private money to finance efforts within friendly local election commissions to get them to do things in deep Democrat counties that would help turn out more Democrats. Uh, lo and behold, they did that in some places. And then you had, uh, I think, 24 states so far have since passed laws uh, outlawing private financing of state and you know county election commissions, et cetera. Outlawing what's known as you know Zuckerbucks, we could call it. You know, all the money that Mark Zuckerberg put in was probably the biggest offender in what you were just describing. Um, but that still leaves a lot of other states where we still have that issue. So how do we respond? And that's one of the things that you know actually we're in the middle of looking at right now. We've got a post-election uh, analysis uh, going on right now uh, within the RNC among RNC members and state chairmen around the country. And each state's different. Each state, as you know, has different state election laws. So you're going to have different problems depending on which state you're standing in, different things that we need to address. Some states have ballot harvesting, which, you know, added on top of what you just, just described, presents a whole different level of a challenge. How do we deal with that? Well, we've got a lot of folks who don't like ballot harvesting. I agree. I think it's bad. We've outlawed it here in South Carolina. But in states where we don't control the legislature and we can't outlaw it, what do we need to do? We need to get good at it. How do we do that? So we need to put the manpower on the ground and marry the low tech, if you will, with the high tech, the manpower with the digital uh, in order to find our folks and do the ballot harvesting better than they did in those places. So it is a constantly evolving situation. You're always looking for how you respond to this. And one of the other key things is the private financing of lawsuits. You know, they did this to us in 2020, the lawsuits that they filed all across the country. They brought that here, if you remember, trying to change our election laws here using COVID as an excuse. We beat them back here. We took them all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we won. We stopped them here in South Carolina. In other states, we weren't able to stop them. Uh, you've seen a lot of uh, C3 and C4 organizations working with friendlies within the Democrat Party to raise tens of millions of dollars to finance lawsuits. So now, essentially, we have entities on, the, on our side that are doing the very same thing. Raise that money to finance lawsuits to harass, if you will, Democrat clerks of court and make sure they purge their roles according to state law, where sometimes they don't do it, or oftentimes they don't do it. Things like that are always in the mix, and it's an evolving process. Drew, I know that Florence and Darlington, if I'm not mistaken, are having their organizational meetings this Saturday. Um, what role does the state party play in that? So our job, number one, help them do that, help facilitate it. Uh, the state party is essentially the compilation of all the county parties around the state of South Carolina. You know, political party organizational structure is like a pyramid. It's a big pyramid scheme, but in a good sense, not a bad sense. We've got 2,300 precincts around South Carolina, 46 counties, one state organization, one national organization. Our job every two years is to rebuild the precinct and county organizations so that we can have the manpower on the ground, the grassroots manpower that we need to win the next election. So right now we're organizing to win in 2024. So for people who want to be a part of that process and make a difference, Get involved locally, uh, whether it's activists, volunteers, potential leadership positions in the party. Now's your chance. You can go to scgop.com slash get local, scgop.com slash get local. Sign up. Let us know you want to be involved. We can let you know where the meetings are for your particular county. Uh, but this is your opportunity. Last question. Appreciate your time. Drew McKissick, who is the SCGOP chairman, also first is the first co-chair at the national level, Drew. I don't want to miss misspeak but is that it co-chair 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 of the national party and um we hope one day we'll be chairman of the national party but but drew could i mean could south carolina republicans be ah, getting in their own way so to speak in other words there's never been more republicans holding office in the state house than today but 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 they're having trouble getting some of the major issues done um 
I don't want to say are there too many Republicans elected in South Carolina because that's certainly not the, the intent. But but it's almost like you know you 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 have such an advantage that you begin to argue amongst yourselves to a yeah. point that you can't get things yeah. done. Sure, sure, yeah, and it goes right back to what we just described a minute ago, focusing on those small differences that we have to the point where you want to essentially fight against one another. I mean, so we beat so many Democrats in most areas of the state where Republicans who are elected there kind of look around and go, well, we don't have any Democrats to fight with. Let's fight with one another. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's well said. Yeah. Well, that's unproductive. And that's how you lose elections, by the way. You lose elections through disunity. Successful elections are about addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. And the more fighting that we do like that at the legislative level, at the policy level, the more we dispirit the people in the grassroots who elect Republicans because they want to see things change. Very well explained. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Take care. We will take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. We've kind of dabbled in the world of podcasting until yesterday. Yesterday, we had a um, a very esteemed guest and timely guest, Alan Wilson, Attorney General of South Carolina, stepped in to this studio, sat down with us for about an hour. We had an in-depth back and forth about, you know, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and eventually the Murdoch trial. But um, we're going to uh, download that podcast publish. today at, to publish that podcast today at 10 o'clock. It'll be made ready and available to you, the consuming public. We need subscribers because subscribers lead to some of that Google money. <laughs> and I'm not in this for altruism or to do the right thing. I'm in this for some of that for some of that Google money, but we want to give you an excerpt, just kind of a um, you know, a, a bit of what we talked about yesterday. We got a couple here. We'll try to play one now, and then again in the nine o'clock hour. Before we play it, I want Rev to tell you how you can become a subscriber to No Stoplights. If you're interested in following along with all the podcasts uh, that we publish, including today's episode uh, with Alan Wilson. You can go if you just if you're a podcast listener and you subscribe to a service like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, just search for No Stoplights with Kennard. You should find the channel, be able to subscribe, and that way, whenever we publish a new a new um, episode, it will download and notify you. Also, if you want to see, we're doing video versions as well, and YouTube.com/slash at No Stoplights will take you right to the correct page where you can. Hit subscribe and make sure notifications are on so when they publish, you'll get that notification. And without further ado, when did the Alec Murdoch case hit your desk? When did you realize that there will be a moment in time that this will define or could potentially help define or play a part in defining my tenure as AG? So our office doesn't initially didn't initially get this um, case. Um, as you know, there are 16 circuit solicitors. People might call them district attorneys in other states. And the attorney general in South Carolina is the chief prosecutor of the state. But most of the crimes, most of the violent type crimes, the murders, the mayhem, the robberies, that kind of stuff, it happens and it's prosecuted at the local level. Usually when there's a conflict uh, between the local sheriff, or the local law enforcement, or the, the local DA or solicitor, our office steps in and takes the case. So that is what happened in this particular case. But before we even talk about the murders, there was another case that, that involving Murdoch's that happened back in twenty nine in February twenty nineteen. And that is the if for the people who are watching the HBO Max or the Netflix documentaries, they spend a lot of time talking about the boat ca- case that tragically took the life of Mallory Beach. And so that case um involved Paul Murdoch, who was the victim in the murder case, was the defendant in that case, and he was driving the boat that ultimate under the influence that ultimately killed Mallory. And we indicted him 
uh, in that case. But that case came to us because of all the inherent conflicts with the Murdoch family and local law enforcement agencies down in that community. So our office got that case early on. Of course, Paul was murdered. That case got dismissed because he's now deceased. There's no point in prosecuting a case when the defendant is deceased. Um, Several months after the murder, and the murder occurred June 7th, 2021. Um, I got the case on August 11th of 2020. When you say got the case, explain to our listeners okay. or viewers, how, how do you get the case? So, um, you know, I figured at some point we were going to get the case. And by getting the case, meaning the solicitor would either recuse themselves and say, hey, I'm too close to this or my office should not. For, for So you, you're suspecting that something's headed your way I'm, before you actually get the official notification. Yes. And, and ultimately, I probably would have taken the case. But um, I wanted to give local law enforcement and the local solicitor the opportunity to do evaluate the case. The local prosecutor down in, in, in the Beaufort County area, in that, which also includes Colleton, Hampton, Allendale, all those counties, um, they were in Jasper. They were, uh, uh, Duffy Stone was the solicitor. He was allowed to evaluate the case over the summer. And he calls me uh, second week of August to say, hey, I just met with SLED. I'm sending you this case because Alec is now their primary suspect. Um, and I got that letter from him that day saying, I'm officially out, you're officially in. And so at that point, we became the lead prosecution agency um, on that case. Uh, about a week or two later, uh, we went and sat down with SLED, and they gave us the full download on everything that they and Colleton County and other law enforcement agencies had done up until that point. Um, now, Alec was not, you know, obviously the only suspect as far as, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he was the main suspect, but the investigation was continuing to go on. So we didn't know where it was going to lead us at that time. And SLED is doing the investigating. Correct. Did you know the Murdoch family? How aware were you of the Murdoch family and the legacy of the Murdoch family in that, in that district? So I um, knew who they were. I had met Randolph Murdoch, who was Alec Murdoch's father, and he had been the solicitor. And if you know, if you look at the Murdoch family, um, they're four generations of Murdochs we're talking about. Starting in 1920, you had the first Murdoch, Richard Murdoch, was a solicitor all the way up until like 1940. He was killed, I think, in a car accident. From 1940 to 1986, you had Buster Murdoch. So nearly half a century, Buster Murdoch was the solicitor for that circuit, five counties, right? And then in in 86, uh, Randolph Murdoch, um, who was Alex's father, was a solicitor all the way up until, I think, 2006 or seven or eight, somewhere in there for 20 years or so. Um, and then Duffy Stone was the first non-Murdoch to become solicitor in a century, and he's been there since then. So I had met Randolph at solicitors because I was a young solicitor. Sure, I worked sure. for Donnie Myers, the 11th Circuit solicitor. So I'd been around them. I'd actually back in, I think I had met, I had met Alec before, but I would say it was probably around 2008. 2009, I'd met them at some event that I was at, and they were there, and, um, and so I just knew them socially, but I, I didn't know them intimately. The Snapchat video seemed to be what turned the case for a lot of people, yeah. um, and, and I'll level with you. I mean, I was fixated. I mean, I got consumed with it. I mm-hmm. saw you in the courtroom, and I thought you did a wonderful job Thank and acquitted you. yourself very well in, uh, in some of your examining and cross-examining, but, but I, I became so, and, and here's what I'm interested in. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an AG. I knew very little about the law, um, the, the, the human component, yeah. you know, the, the, there's a reality in life that good people do bad things and bad people do good things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's just, it's been around since the beginning of time. It'll probably be around until you and I are long gone. But, but I try to determine, okay, this guy is a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. He's a bad business partner. Um, but, but did he kill his wife and kid? Mm-hmm. 
And and as you guys presented evidence, it, it it was more convincing to me that he did. Right. Was the Snapchat video the I don't want to say you have a high five moment because you said it earlier. Uh, a, a kid and a woman are dead. Right. And there's no happiness in that. There's right. no joy to take in that. But when did you get the Snapchat video? And and, and I mean, I'm not t- period of time. I mean, I know you don't know the day and the time of day, but 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 work me through. Alec is the suspect, Mm -hmm. the lead suspect. Mm -hmm. Did we have the Snapchat video then, then, or did that information come as the case progressed? So, yeah, I'm happy I can answer that. Um, So, so first off, we didn't have enough evidence to indict Alec of murder back when he was a suspect uh, when we first got the case. But there was a lot of things that he was saying that didn't make sense. And, you know, the defense's theory of the case was, the state, meaning SLED, local law enforcement, eventually us, we zeroed on him from day one and we never looked anywhere else. Well, that's not true because every time people, we had a hotline. So people would call SLED and say, they would just off the wall, people, a tip line will call into the tip line and say, hey, Billy Bob down the street says so-and-so was, the mur-, you know, they'd have to go and talk to Billy Bob and John Doe and Jane Doe. They had the trace down. They couldn't not go talk to people because then they knew that would be thrown in their face. So we pursued every lead. And by we, I mean SLED did. And uh, in the early days of the investigation, the, p- the problem was is, and they kept talking about this circle, where when you start an investigation, you're trying to get people out of the circle. You're verifying, okay, you're the, you're the first, you know, the husband who's the first person on the scene starts off in the circle just by, by mere presence and sure. relationship. So they go, okay, we got to find out where you were. We got to eliminate you so we can go down. And as we were eliminating every single possible suspect, there was just a piece, there was information that prevented law enforcement from eliminating Alec from consideration. So as the investigation goes on, obviously we're uncovering all the financial crimes for literally a year. The one thing that was troubling was his timeline didn't add up. So in, if you remember in the timeline, Paul at approximately 840 has a four minute conversation with a young man named Rogan Gibson. Mm-hmm. That is the young man whose dog is in the video. Mm-hmm. They were boarding the dog there and they were trying to examine the dog's tail. Well, there was no video to corroborate that. There was Rogan's statement to law enforcement that I over I thought I overheard Alec in the background. When Alec was confronted with that, oh, well, Rogan says you were there, you know, at 8:40 something that night when he was talking with Paul, um, the last conversation he ever had with Paul, and you said you were taking a nap. And he goes, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically kind of denies and dismisses that. No, he must have been wrong um, that I wasn't there. So it was just a he said, he said. In, I believe, April of 22, which is approximately 10 months after the murders, law enforcement is able to get into the iPhone, to Paul's iPhone. And that is where that video was. Because you remember, the video was taken because Paul and Rogan are talking on the phone for four minutes at 840 to 844 about the dog's tail. They want to get it examined. Rogan says, why don't you try to FaceTime so I can see it, so I can observe it. They, they attempt to do a FaceTime video. The FaceTime fails after 11 seconds. So Rogan tells Paul, why don't you do a video and text it to me? That's when Paul does a 50-second video of the dog's tail. That 50-second video ends at 8.45 and 45 seconds. Uh, There's in that video that you hear Paul, um, Alec and Maggie off in the distance yelling, and it's clearly Alec's voice. We did not know that video existed until 2022, like 10 months after the murders. So when we got that video, we now have a guy who's lying about his his where he was when three or four minutes before the murders occurred. 
And so that really zeroed in on him. Now, that's not the only evidence, but it was a crucial piece sure. of evidence. I mean, it was the one that really turned me in a particular mm-hmm. direction. On, you talk about the financial crimes. There are some that criticized your office for mm-hmm. concentrating too much and too long on the financial crimes. Why did you think it was that important to continually drill that this guy has lied, this guy's cheated, and this guy's stolen? Well, first off, there's there's a number of I can unpack that in several ways. First off, when you're going into a case, you don't know what is and what is not important to those 12 members of the jury that are going to making a decision. And if you don't put information in to the record, you can't argue it in closing summation at the end of, of a case. So people were like, you're spending too much time. You're, you're going into Did you too hear much- the criticism? Uh, I didn't at the time. I mean, people at the office would say social media is upset that you're going gotcha. this direction. Okay. Yeah, but okay. I didn't. I didn't. Gotcha. I wasn't watching our our. Coverage. You're focused on your job. I'm focused on our job for that six week period of time. But people. But I did hear from office that social that social media and everyone on the news was concerned that we were spending too much time on that. But here's the thing: we don't care what people on social media think. We care what the twelve jurors think. And if we don't put the information in, we can't argue it in closing. And also, we don't know what's important to them. Also, when the defense opened the door in, in, a, in a law, in the law, you can't say John Doe is a lying, lyingest liar who ever lied. Therefore, he probably murdered his wife and son. You can't do that. Uh, you, there, there's, you can't just go use um, evidence of other bad acts to prove another completely unrelated crime. But when the defense opened the door to the motivation and to his state of mind, the court allowed us to, you are allowed to go into those things to prove what their mental, what was going on in their mind, what they were thinking at the time. And so the defense was trying to say, this is a happy-go-lucky family man who would have no reason to murder his spouse. And when they did that, like, well, wait a second, this happy-go-lucky is living a separate life that no one knows about. He's only been stealing from his clients. He's stealing from his law partners. He's stealing from his own family. And he's not been doing it for a couple of months. He's been doing it for more than a decade. And by the way, he's doing it to fuel a drug habit he's got you know, I mean, you heard about the, the amount of pills he was taking. So we went into all that financial crimes because, A, we wanted to lock him in on the lies um, because now he still has to go to trial on, on those cases. And now we have him locked in on, you know, his admissions because he took the stand. But we had to go in there to tell the jury, this is a man who had lived his entire life, Ken. His entire existence was predicated on this family legacy that he was this pillar of the community in his mind's eye, and that all of that was going away. There was a there was a gathering storm as Creighton Waters, the, the chief prosecutor I signed the case to, um, argued. There was a gathering storm. It was all coming to a point. A few days later, there was going to be a hearing where the process of opening up his financials to the world was going to begin. It wouldn't probably happen that day, but it would have begun the process. And his entire world was going to come crashing down. And everything, his crimes were going to come to the light of day. He was going to lose his livelihood. He was going to lose his bar license, everything. And he had to make the ultimate decision, what do I do to survive? And murdering his wife and son was the decision that he made. Wow. I mean, that's pretty intense. And that's from, I don't want to say the horse's mouth, but that's up close and personal to the Murdoch trial. That will um, download or publish publish (laughs) at 10 this morning. Uh, the full, I think it's about an hour long. Alan joined us yesterday afternoon. We sat in this studio for about an hour. And I um, mean, that's not all we talked about. The majority of the content, content was the Murdoch trial. There's a high degree of interest in that trial. Um, I thought Alan did a, a great job of uh, kind of letting his guard down, 
Um, I mean, I'm a friend, therefore he's not worried about some gotcha journalism in play there. But, um, I mean, we've dabbled in podcasting until today, and we'd like to believe this legitimizes ourselves as uh, podcasters. We're not members of the media. Please understand, we don't have any intent or desire to be members of the media, but we are building a, um, I mean, Rev and I have this burning desire to be media moguls, and the only way you become media (laughs) moguls is to build an empire. So as part of this multi and vertically integrated uh, media empire, podcasting is a part of it. And I thought Alan was a very appropriate guest to have as our first ever guest on those stoplights. So once again, that will, that will publish, publish today at, um, at 10 AM in its entirety. And you can watch it by doing what Royal Rev. It will be on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash at no stoplights. We'll take you directly to the YouTube channel. Or if you listen on Spotify or iTunes, iHeart, wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for No Stoplights with Ken Ard and subscribe to the channel there. No question about it. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, I would imagine that there will be some, as a cross-pollination of um, a product on Wake Up Carolina, product on um, No Stoplights, it'll be a, um, once again, it's a complimentary product. It's something that Rev and I have considered for a long time. Do we need to do this? Do we not need um, to do that? Somebody asked me about, you know, a slow start. I'll give an example. I, I built a convenience store. I had my grand opening a month after I'd been opened because I didn't want everybody showing up the day of the grand opening, the first day of business. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, we could have taken good care of you. So we gradually got there. And by the time, you know, six weeks into the game, we kind of knew how to run a convenience store. And, um, and we had the grand opening and all the goodies that go along with that. So, um, so Rev and I have decided that we'll kind of stick our toe in the water a little bit at a time, we dropped these nuggets, um, these um, these rants, uh, you know, these um, these these. Uh, it's it's, it's an eight-minute soundbite, is what it is about banking or um, communism or whatever, <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever, the to to what, whatever the topic of the day is. But um, what I'd like to do, and you know, we don't get our way all the time, but I'd love to have um, one podcast about an issue that is very timely in American politics, and another of an interview. And I don't want it all be about politics. I mean, I want to interview the somebody from NASCAR, somebody from from Clemson Athletics, South Carolina Athletics, somebody from you know theology, somebody from astrology. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't want to duplicate what Joe Rogan's done. I'll take the pay. Um, but we do want to be diverse. I mean, this is um, I mean, conservative talk radio is what it is, right? I mean, it's um, I mean, I, I would argue it's the last bastion of free and independent thought because we take phone calls. We don't censor. We don't. We don't screen. I mean, your opinions are always welcomed here. Uh, the podcast will be a little bit different. Um, it's it's not live. It's not. You know, we we can edit some of these things when when I make mistakes. And my God, I make mistakes. Uh, but we have the privilege of taking some of those out. And uh, but we felt it important for you, our audience, to hear um, kind of what we think we have in store for you as a complimentary product. That being. Uh, a podcast and and listen rev asked me where do you watch or i think my wife may have said where do you watch your podcast and youtube and, but i watch excerpts i mean I, I don't have the patience to sit down for an hour and watch a podcast and i'm not saying i wouldn't do it uh if something was interesting enough but i'm, I'm one of these hit and run guys you know what i'm i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm here for two or three minutes and then right. i'm moving on oh you're one of those yeah if there's something else for right. uh, three or four minutes it's got to be a damn good song for me to listen to all of it I mean, I'll just say that I've got to back my wife and kids are, I mean, they stay angry with me about when I'm in control of the music, 
we hear about half the song and then we move on to another wonder if there's and a ma- name for what you have i don't have any idea well that's busy head syndrome <laughs> i'm sure i've got it um clinically and medically diagnosed but i'm not the only one i mean there, there, there are other friends of mine afflicted with the same uh busy head syndrome and, and i do have another segment from the attorney general alan wilson's uh interview from yesterday uh, and we can play that in the next hour yeah we'll play that we got mike nunn sheriff's office sonny collins from the highway patrol will be with us and then we'll get to um another excerpt toward the end of the show but um yeah well, i mean you know you're the low-hanging fruit i mean those of you who have been loyal listeners to wake up carolina if you don't um support the podcast we done we don't have a chance to garner any other audience and um maybe That's we've true. worn out our welcome i don't know reb maybe, maybe they've had i can hear people now saying i've had enough of that guy i, mean, yeah. I don't need more, any more of it yeah. really more cowbell more again <laughs> no we don't need more cowbell nor do we need um more ken but you can download the podcast on spotify and youtube um we've had to prove we're not a robot or a machine rev came in this morning and said hey i did a photocopy of your driver's license to prove to youtube that we're not a robot or a machine uh we're not artificial intelligence we're artificial and we're not intelligent um no we ain't artificial nor are we intelligent either yeah we're as far away from artificial intelligence as you can possibly we're real and we're dumb i guess that would be the exact opposite of artificial intelligence but are we real real dumb yeah we're real dumb 843-661-0937 is our number um i'm nearly thanking sponsors for the podcast on the radio show we ain't supposed to do that uh management's made it very clear there's certain people that help us stay on the air here there's certain people that help us um for however long we decide um to podcast over there thanks for listening we got another hour we'll be back in just a few moments that's about as motown as it gets isn't it riff that's a good one man that's you great. ask you shall receive that's right. as far as wake up um carolina is concerned uh we had a request yesterday it basically said hey i know you refer to the republican party as stale pale and male but it ain't all stale pale and male how about a little motown over the gateway so we um you ask we shall um deliver thank you rev for finding a um sure. yeah we, we could have a motown monday or something we could pl- play a um great because because both our music heroes have been influenced by motown I mean, there's no doubt about it if you talk to the stones long they'll talk about how rhythm and blues and motown which i, I guess the stones would have been were the Stones before Jesus or after? <laughs> Ask Keith Richards. Let, let's forget Motown. Were the Stones before Jesus? Yeah. Did Jesus walk the earth before or after Keith Richards was born? That's that's a good trivia question um, that we not had. We don't know if we'd get a uh, an exact answer. Uh, Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office, is with us. Speaking of Keith Richards, I think of drugs. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why think, pretty good segue, no idea why. A good segue. When I, uh, you know you gotta believe that keith richards has probably experimented a time he's or dabbled. two uh, in his life yeah he's dabbled there you go red we're dabbling in podcasts he could be a subject matter expert yeah, i'm sure he could i'm sure he could um uh he has the funds to hire a good defense lawyer it'd be a lot of fun to try to take richards to court but but i mean a, a lot of the interdiction that, that is done on the interstate. And I think Florence is unique. I mean, I just something in Orangeburg. Well, Orangeburg would be similar. Some of our other listening has our interstate kind of running in close proximity, but, but the interstate allows for the economy to, 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 to advantage itself, but it also forces law enforcement to do something that sheriff's departments without interstates don't have to emphasize or pay as much attention. Is that fair? 
to say, Mike. Sure. And, um, you know, Florence County Sheriff's Office had a long and storied history of uh, uh, battling the war on crime on the interstates. Uh, you know, the I-95 is a major uh, transportation uh, route in the United States, uh, New York to Miami. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a river. Uh, it flows both directions day and night, 24-7, and uh, a lot of stuff moves up and down that interstate, uh, some good, some bad. So so do we get our share? Well, I mean, is there? I, this is the weirdest way to ask the question, but I'm asking it anyway. Is there a quota? I mean, you know that there are things moving up and down the interstate that don't need to be moving. You know you're not getting all of it. But, but how do we make sure we're getting enough to really make a difference? Well, we clearly know we're not getting it all or near all. Um, and you know, there's probably more that rolls by than we ever know, but, um, you know, we have to make an effort and, uh, we have to try and put pressure on the criminal element. Otherwise they, you know, will fill any vacuum that's out there. And so, um, we choose to, uh, dedicate some of our resources to, uh, interdicting some of this, uh, contraband that's moving up and down the, uh, interstate. And it's not just narcotics uh they're counterfeit goods there's human trafficking and the same skills uh for deputies to uh find and interdict the uh, narcotics uh apply to human trafficking uh human smuggling and all that the same indicators the same protocols are are used to find those things as well so Uh, we have a very robust uh, and uh, nationally recognized team on the interstate. And, and things have happened recently that are encouraging. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, back in December, um, we interdicted about 154 pounds of cocaine. Um, wow. uh, pure cocaine. And uh, an amazing uh, amount uh, to, uh, to, to catch uh, estimated street values over $9 million on, on that one stop alone um uh earlier uh this week uh one of our uh deputies hit on 154 pounds of marijuana um pretty significant uh a bust and actually yesterday uh another hit on about 164 pounds of marijuana so um you know over over the course of the week we've gotten over 300 pounds of uh, marijuana that was uh, traveling up and down the interstate what do we do with the with the marijuana and the cocaine? I mean, how do we dispose of it? Well, uh, we have to retain it, uh, test it uh, through a, a lab, and we have a chemist that tests it to determine exactly what it is. Just because it's a white powdery substance uh, put in, uh, you know, uh, kilos uh, doesn't uh, doesn't fly in court. We have to have an expert to testify as to what it is. Uh, so we do that. So it's tested. Um, then it's retained and stored in evidence until the trial's concluded. And once the trial's concluded, then um, we uh, take it to SLED. SLED has an incinerator, and um, the, uh, the, the dope is uh, incinerated uh, according to DHEC regulations. What if there are? What what if funds are confiscated? What what if somebody has 120 pounds of marijuana and 100 thousand dollars in cash? Walk me through the process of what happens to the um, to the cash. So under South Carolina law, um, if uh, currency is uh, found in close proximity to uh, illegal narcotics, uh, that uh, that money is subject to seizure and forfeiture. Now the 
law enforcement seizes the uh, the uh, the money through process, and then either the attorney general or the um, uh, solicitor or the um, federal partners will bring an action in court to get a judicial order authorizing the seizure, the forfeiture of those funds, uh, and uh, it's split among various law enforcement uh, entities. And the law enforcement entity gets to keep some amount of that money. Are you allowed to reinvest that money in further interdictory uh, procedures? Well, um, according to, to the statute, uh, state statute, um, 70% of the forfeited funds go to the uh, seizing agency. Uh, 20% goes to the solicitor and 5% goes to the state treasurer. Um, the money that comes to the law enforcement agency is highly restricted on what it can be used for. It has to be used for further drug interdiction. And um, anytime that it's used for any other purpose is illegal. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of agencies have found themselves sideways with the authorities for the inappropriate use of that money. Mike, is it, is it, does it put law enforcement in a predicament when we as a society has so mainstreamed marijuana? I mean, we know cocaine's illegal. That, that's a dip, but I'm talking about marijuana. It's legal in this state. It's not legal in this state. You can do X with it in, in this state and Y in it with, a, with another state. Does it complicate the world of law enforcement as to how, I don't want to say popular marijuana has become, but how mainstream it's become? Well, it still isn't mainstream in South Carolina. It's against the law in South Carolina. It's against federal law. So until those things change, we're going to continue to enforce the law. And everybody, you know, well, not everybody, you know, there's a sense out there among certain parts of the uh, uh, public that, well, it's just just weed, you know? That's young the, people, I mean, I'm telling you, the young people believe that. And um, unfortunately, it, ask anyone uh, of, of our, our, our narcotics agents will tell you that anybody that they in, encounter is a heroin addict will tell you they ch- typically started with marijuana. It is a gateway drug. It is not harmless. Um, it has health effects just like other things. Now, uh, what we're seeing is a lot of the marijuana that uh, kids are buying these days are is laced with fentanyl. And that takes it out of the you know, kind of the recreational realm into the deadly realm. And so you never know what you're getting. We also know that um, a lot of the, um, the street and uh, violent crime that we see is fueled by the illicit drug trade, including the marijuana. So yes, it's uh, it attracts crime. It is uh, part of our dynamic. If we could do away with the illegal narcotics, um, we'd probably see uh, a ninety percent drop in our property and violent crimes. It's, it's what fuels the process. How much how much interest do we have in the origin of the drug? In other words, if the drug is confiscated in Florence County by the Florence County Sheriff's Office, do we do and who does the investigation? to find kind of back channel and find out where exactly the uh, the drugs came from well the investigation doesn't stop on i-95 um we work with our federal partners in the dea homeland security the fbi um and uh, so uh, they assist us we assist them in uh helping to track the root source of where the uh drugs come from so there's a lot of intelligence out there 
And uh, so we work closely with all of these partners. So, so as a political matter, I mean, I read a lot, I study a lot, I try to understand a lot of the, um, the, the, the not-so-secure southern border and the amount of illicit substance and fentanyl coming across, coming across the border. Does law enforcement lobby government? I mean, I, in other words, you just said that, that if we didn't have as much, you know, um, uh, drugs, we wouldn't have anywhere near as much crime. So obviously it would make more sense for the government to, to secure the border to help you and your, and your efforts. What sort of lobbying efforts does law enforcement get involved with in, in trying to cut down the flow of, of, um, of marijuana, cocaine, uh, fentanyl, opiates? Well, I can't speak for all agencies, sure. but I know that, um, our agency is in touch with our legislators, both in the state level and at national level. Um, we tell them what we see and what's, you know, where we believe the problem is. It's up to them to fashion a, a result. And, you know, for the most part, uh, most of our elected representatives recognize the problem. They regret the problem. Uh, but until the problem uh, is addressed in Washington, there's not a lot we can do at the local level other than to continue to do what we're doing. Very, very well explained. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having us on. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. One Thursday a month we refer to as Law Enforcement Thursday. That includes a visit from the Sheriff's Department and the Highway Patrol. Sunny College, South Carolina Highway Patrol is with us. Good morning, sir. How are good, you? Good morning. So, so Rev comes in and asks Sonny. <laughs> Rev's a big Gamecock fan. So Rev staggers <laughs> right. in. And asked Sonny, uh, I mean, somewhat, asked Sonny, said, um, hey, when does Clemson play in the NCAA basketball <laughs> tournament? And I'm going like, Sonny goes, I don't know. I don't keep up with Clemson basketball. He probably does. He just says that because it's not very <laughs> right, good. Right. And I said, Rev, when them Gamecocks play? You know? <laughs> That'd be a good answer. <laughs> yeah. But that women's team is what we're so proud of. Right, Rev? Right. That women's oh, yeah. team is what Rev and I are so uh, moved by. What What Rev doesn't know is um, I do have – I do. I can make recommendations on enforcement roads. Oh, and I tell you, this Ooh. road right here in front of radio Ooh. station looks like prime real estate Ooh. this afternoon. Well, the good thing is, I always follow all traffic laws when I drive. And well, I, I can't say that. I can't say that. I, I try hard. I do I, my best. I, I can about, say it too. By the way, I do. I do my best. Uh, I spent a good bit of time in Horry County, and I want to get Sonny's take on this. Um, Horry County, at one point in time, was a destination. Uh, kind of a tourist destination yeah. that got real busy in the summer. It ain't that anymore, Sonny. I'm telling you, it is un, it's mind-boggling to me how much traffic there is year-round in Horry County. I'll give you a statistic, and you'll be interested in this. Of all the permits, of all the residential building permits issued in South Carolina the last two years, 25% have been in Horry County. Does that, does that, does that complicate your, I mean, you, you talked about your unit, yeah. your territory. It includes Horry County. Yes. Does that complicate how you police other areas outside of Horry County? Yeah. I mean, you know, Troop, Troop 5 encompasses Horry County because all those people are coming every day. There, There's, I think, I think I read a stat and I think you may have had it. 48 people a day. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Positive almost, almost 20,000 people a year, mm -hmm. but there aren't any new roads going up. Uh, you know, it's the same roads we've been using for the past 10 or 15 years. If you ride down there, and I, and I think if you start looking, it's not the oceanfront. It's coming back towards Conway now. And you uh, you can just ride down any road, Highway 9, 90, 501, and uh, everywhere there's a patch of woods, it's being cleared. 
and they're getting ready to put a housing development and it does it adds a lot of stress but does it do, do the, they uh, allocate highway. resources accordingly in other words at the state level mm-hmm. does the um the whoever funds the highway patrol yeah. do they say wow i mean they're experiencing enormous growth we need more patrolmen we need more assets down there yeah and and in our area Horry county has the most troopers working at any given time than any other county right here in our area because we do we have to base that on traffic volume calls for service traffic collisions all that goes into the mix when you try to allocate how many people do we need to work a particular area and florence would be right behind Horry county i right, got another weird question for you time changed sunday morning yep that i mean people that were on the road when it was daylight in the morning or now on the road when it's dark in the morning um, I mean, obviously the afternoon, bit, but does, do we notice an, a, a difference in people's driving habits when time changes? You know, there are studies that say that the, the time change causes more crashes, uh, that it just affects people. I, I don't know. It's never affected me. I'm just, you know, it's five o'clock. But the studies say. But the studies, studies support that. You know, right now, what we look at is what we call our vulnerable roadway users. That's our pedestrians, our motorcycles, and our bicyclists, because this time change We've actually got two things going on. In the afternoon, it's, it's daylight longer. Mm-hmm. People are out riding bicycles, mm-hmm. they're out walking, they're enjoying the sunshine. So as you as a driver are out driving, you're encountering these people uh, more that you normally than, don't. That you normally don't. As the weather gets warm, we're going to see the motorcycles start coming out the garage. And in the flip side, in the morning, it's dark. And, you know, we talked about last month when I was here, school bus stops. Well, now we got those school bus stops sitting out there. Those kids are sitting out there in the dark. So time change until it kind of balances itself out in April, you know, it kind of it kind of gets back to normal. Uh, it is it is a, a a tough time both in the afternoon for our our people out walking and and riding bicycles, and in the mornings for our our school bus people. So are we preparing for the summer? I mean, we know there's a big uptick. I mean, you've got 95, you got 20, you got Horry County, you got beach traffic. I mean, what what are you guys doing now to get ready? Because you can't wait until the day of the fight to train. No. So so what are you doing now to get ready for all that? So the, the plans have already started. In fact, just yesterday we were in hurricane meetings. Um, we're going around right now having hurricane meetings. So we're always about four to five months out on planning. Really, when you talk about the beach, there is no downtime. I mean, it's busy down there year round. However, this month, spring break for the colleges kick in. They'll start uh, next month, high school, and then we'll roll right into uh, graduations and then right into bike weeks and into summer's on. So we've already planned for all that. We have the plans in place. Uh, the troopers are allocated for that area. Uh, we'll have extra troopers this year working down in the Myrtle Beach area to assist the city of Myrtle Beach with all that influx down in that area. So it, when you just, you know, one time I read, I think it was 15 to 18 million people a year visit Myrtle Beach. And when you talk about that, that amount of people just coming to an area that they, they're not familiar with, there's going to be crashes. There's going to be uh, things that happen. But hopefully we're there and we have the people there to take care of. Mike was talking about the interdiction team with mm-hmm. the sheriff's department. Is that something you guys collaborate with? Because ultimately the sheriff's department does not police highway traffic. I mean, mm-hmm. generally that's, that's the highway patrol's job, but, but talk a little bit, if you don't mind about the collaboration between the interdiction team and, yeah. and highway patrol. Yeah, we worked hand in hand. We have our own interdiction team um, that, that has canines and, and things to work that. And, and they're, they're assigned all over the state. But even our, our local troopers, when the when the sheriff's office is having a a, uh, a a thing on the interstate, then we assist them as much as we can. Vice versa, if we're going to have uh, some type of initiative on a roadway or an interstate, we reach out to our local partners, which would be here at the sheriff's department, and they help us. So it's it's one team working for a common goal, 
and that is to make the road safer and get these drugs and people off the road. Are you more or less encouraged at how many young people are interested in law enforcement? I mean, no. for a long time, there was a re- I mean, the, the media painted you guys in such a negative light. I thought to myself, why would any young person want to get in the middle of that? I mean, we need good young people getting in the middle of that because it's critically important, vitally important. But, but, but are you, I mean, are you encouraged at the number of young people who have an interest in law enforcement? I think what we see now, because of the media painting us in such a, a dark light, if you get that young person who wants to come do this job, they really want to come do this job. It's not, they're not just looking for a paycheck. They're not just looking for whatever. It's someone who, who generally wants to be in law enforcement. And, you know, we're hiring right now. Uh, we're, we have a continuous hiring process going on and, and we're filling those slots. So if somebody's interested, what do they need to do? I mean, if somebody's interested, mm-hmm. genuinely interested in the Korean law enforcement, highway patrol, what do they do? They can just go to, go to the website, which is join schp.com. And there's everything online. The application's online. You fill it out and submit it online. A recruiter will then call you or get in touch with you via email, whichever's best for you. And we'll start lining up the process and get you into the hiring process. Okay, before I let you get out of here, Elvis got some like, uh, he was kind of a ceremonial member. He got a badge and all that good stuff. Is there any chance that I could get, you know, one of these <laughs> fancy badges from a wallet? And Well, I mean, as a as a podcaster, I think you, that puts you in an elite League category it, it, it kind of does sonny. it does and it kind of does and i even downloaded it on my phone and so, i didn't rag you about the tigers none today not, not yet not, yeah, i mean i've not said i mean I've, I've been all encouraging and supportive of law enforcement <laughs> i'm just thinking me and elvis could get one of those <laughs> one of those ceremonial you, you and elvis. Yeah, me and elvis get one of those ceremonial membership to, um to law enforcement we'll, we'll see what we can do okay fair enough fair uh-huh. thanks sonny thanks sir we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jeff in Chesterfield. Good morning. Hey, good morning, fellas. I hope y'all having a great day. Uh, beautiful weather. And I heard Ken, I heard you make a comment just a few minutes ago that you might try to get you a badge. That'd be pretty cool. Maybe you should get him to put you some blue lights in your car. Then you'd be like Murdoch, but you got to be careful what you ask for. I got to check your podcast out, though. I can't wait to listen to it. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Yeah, when we ended the segment, Sonny said, that reminds me. I said, don't you say it. No. Don't you say it. And he said, no, that, I mean, that's exactly. Uh, remember the badge and the blue light saying, um, we ain't heard the last of that story yet. I mean, there, there are other people that are going to be implicated in some way, shape, or form um, I like my daddy said, you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. I mean, there were some that chose to lay down with dogs and I don't think we know who all of, um, of they are, but, or who all of them are, but I think eventually, um, we will speak of the podcast. It is now, um, it is now downloaded or <laughs> published, published on, on YouTube, on YouTube. Video but, just um, went it actually live. went out a little bit earlier than we anticipated. Rev's trying to do some fancy schmancy things uh, behind my back that I don't know anything about. But, uh, but anyway, the podcast is now um, live and available. Not live, but available on YouTube. Uh, when will it be available on Spotify, Rev? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, let's do this, if you don't mind. We, we got another excerpt, or kind of a teaser. And in the movie business, it would be a trailer. Um, there you go. And this in, one's about six, six or seven minutes long. Um, Alan Wilson was our first ever guest on No Stoplights. Um, it is now on YouTube. It will be on Spotify at 10, but here's a bit of a, um, kind of another teaser of our podcast from yesterday. I want to ask you this, yes, sir. but because as a, as a lay person who doesn't understand the law, it's hard for me to believe that somebody kills their kid and their wife execution style 
in the most brutal fashion imaginable, and you didn't ask for the death sentence. Why is that? Why, why didn't we try this case as a death sentence case? So there are a lot of factors that you look at when you're considering a capital case. A lot of factors. First off, uh, the first factor is you look at the efficacy of the death penalty. It's been, what, 11, 12 years since the death sentence was carried out in South Carolina uh, because of the lack of drugs. They passed a law allowing us other methods of execution, but that has been challenged in court and is tied up right now. It could be, you know, with, with no legal battles or no lack of drugs to carry out an execution in South Carolina, it could take 25 to 30 years to execute someone with the appeals process the way they run. That's the first thing. Um, number two, um, this is a this is a highly circumstantial case. Now, circumstantial evidence is just as powerful as direct evidence, and especially when you have as much as we did. But we didn't know how. It's not like there is a confession or a video. It was all forensic. It was all trapping him in the lies and narrowing him down to where he admitted he was there a minute, a minute or two before. Um, but it was that. And then you also got to consider the victims. When you're asking for some, someone comes and murders members of your family we're going to be going to you and saying, Ken, we're considering all our options, and one of them is capital case. What do you think? But in this particular case, the victims were obviously supportive of the defendant. Um, and, you know, that was a factor. I mean, you we're, we're going to be asking for the death sentence when the people who, you know, and they, they were also witnesses in the state's case. So we we wanted to be sensitive we wanted to be reasonable. We wanted to be fair going into this case. So asking for the death penalty involves an evaluation of a large number of factors. Um, and for us, when you're going into a case that's this complicated, plus the length of the case would have gone up exponentially. The cost of the case would have gone up millions of dollars. You're funding the defense's case at this point. Um, we'd still be in Colleton County right now in this trial if this was a capital case. So we considered all of that, and we figured the the best thing, the best punishment for him is for him to lie in a cell for the rest of his life thinking about what he had done. During this case, there were other issues raised. Mm -hmm. there, there were other examples exposed. Where are we in um, the, the, the maid, you know, the, the housekeeper? Satterfield. Uh, Satterfield. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kid, Smith, that, that well, you know, was allegedly run over. And, and some people have questions about that. Yeah. I mean, divulge as much of that as you can, because I would imagine those are ongoing investigations. But 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 every time we had an answer, there was another question right. that, that arose. Well, what I can tell people is this. I can't comment on an open pending investigation or, or the possibility of an open pending investigation. What I can say is, is that my office, the Office of the Attorney General, when it receives evidence, we will pursue ev we will pursue wherever evidence leads us. And if we can, if we get evidence sufficient to prove the elements of a particular crime beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury, we will prosecute that case. But we have to meet the legal burden on us. What is that legal burden? Beyond a reasonable doubt. So if if there are four elements to a crime, to, to a crime, we have to convince all twelve jurors um, beyond a reasonable doubt for each of the individual elements of that crime. If if 11 jurors, we convince 11 jurors, but one juror doesn't believe the third element of one of the crimes, it's a hung jury. So it is an, it is a incredible burden on the state. And it's a burden we welcome. It's the, it's the way our criminal justice is set up. You want the burden on the state. Um, so yeah, the burden is ours and it's beyond a reasonable doubt of every element of every crime. You got to be proud of Creighton. I mean, the way Creighton Waters acquitted himself, mm -hmm. I mean, he's going against two high powered, legendary South Carolina defense attorneys. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say your opinion of Creighton because I know what your opinion of Creighton is, but um, 
but, but it's got to make you proud to know that he represented your office the way he did. Well, if Creighton were here, and the first thing he would say is, you know, he would say thank you, um, but he would then turn around and say there was a team. And, you know, Ken, I was there for nearly the entire trial, and I was living in the hotel with these young men and women, and with Creighton and the rest of the team. There were there were 12 of us there, 13 if you count our victim's advocate, who was working with, you know, supporting the Murdoch family at the time. That was her job. But, you know, we had seven prosecutors and then five support staff working 16, 17, 18 hours a day, you know, going away from our families, going home at night. It was almost like a dorm, like college dorm lifestyle. We're all in a hallway at the Hampton Inn and Suites on exit 90 or exit 53 or whatever it is on 95. We, um, we were sitting there, go to bed 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, get up at five, six in the morning. If you could get a workout in, you did. You go get your breakfast and you head back to court and you're there all day grueling. You guys could cut cut it off, right? You could go to the bathroom or you could go. We had to sit there when court was in. We had to be on, you know, 10, 12 hours a day and then work after that. And so I just want to say how proud I am of all of our staff that did that. Um, I mean, they did such a fantastic job. I selected Creighton a year and a half ago to be the chief prosecutor because I've always known Creighton was capable of it. And then from that selection, he was able to build the staff uh, of people to prosecute this case. So, yes, I'm incredible. I'm, I'm talking to them like they're like my kids, but I'm so proud of all of them. But what was the case a roller coaster? I mean, there, there were days I thought you guys nailed it. There were other days I thought you left some meat on the bone, mm-hmm. so to speak. There were days that I thought the defense team raised some valid issues. I mean, kind of walk me through what it's like to be on that roller coaster. We had a couple of really good days, but 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 today sucked, you so, know. So I, let's, let's use football. Um, you ever watch a, a really good football game when your team's going up against? I think the last Carolina Clemson football game was that game. It was good for you and I. It was yeah. I'm a gamecock, but in you know, but the point is, is that there were the Friday before the trial started. I went in and I used that as an analogy that that Carolina Clemson game. I said there are going to be moments where. You, you have a great series and you score and then you'll be in the next series and you're going to fumble the ball and you're going to turn the ball over. Or you're going to get called for a targeting or you're going to have a yellow flag thrown. You got to get back up and play the next down. You're going to be ups and they're going to be down. They're going to score on us. They're not going to let us just walk into the end zone, right? And they're going to walk into our end zone at times. But when that happens, you can't sit there and beat yourself up. You got to dust yourself off. And so I said, there are going to be days when you feel like there's no way we're going to win this case. And there are going to be days when you feel like there's no way we can lose it. Don't believe either of those days you got to stay focused in the middle and play to the last second of the last quarter. And that's how we treated it. And there were also days where I knew that, okay, the witnesses that we're putting up, not only the jury, but the rest of the world that's watching this trial is not going to understand because we're putting up information and people don't know why it's important or they don't know what, why it's relevant and how it fits into the broader story. And we knew that people would probably get bored. A lot of it was very dry. But we had to put it into evidence so that we could tie it all together in our, na- our big narrative at the very end. So we understood that there were going to be ups and downs, highs and lows in this very long trial, and that we just can't focus on any one moment or any one day. That's kind of an interesting take from Alan Wilson. Um, the roller coaster of being there, you know, living it, uh, breathing it every second of every day. Uh, I'm still trying to be a dad. We actually went into, um, I mean, I, you know, if you watch the podcast, Alan's wife, Jennifer, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer and has had some pretty serious health uh, consequences as a result of uh, the breast cancer. So dealing with that, got kids at home, um, your neck is on the line, so to speak. Um, yeah, Creighton Waters is the lead prosecutor, um, but, but the AG's office is who chose to 
pursue this uh, this case. I thought he gave, excuse me, kind of a um, a, a, a pretty good understanding of what it was like to ride um, that roller coaster. What is it about that that we become so fixated on? What is it about tragedy that we become so interested in? I mean, human tragedy is something America's always had. Well, I guess human beings since the beginning of time have always had an interest in human tragedy. I don't think we celebrate in it. I just think our curiosity overwhelms our normal senses. You know, when you hear things like, you know, a man killed his wife and kid. I mean, why, why are we so entranced or, you know, attracted to that sort of um situation? I, I, I don't have any idea. I don't have any. I mean, I know I no am idea. in the weirdest way imaginable. I mean, it's just like rubbernecking at a wreck. I mean, I get that. There's something you don't normally see. There's a chance to see it. When you see it, you wish you could unsee it. If you see something you wish you hadn't seen, a lot of C's in there, but you know what I'm <laughs> what I mean. But but what is it yeah. about human tragedy that it's, we find so interesting and curious? It's the well, first the emotion of it. I mean, we think about the human side, like you said. For me, it's man, this is emotion. And then you say, How could somebody, anybody, do these things that you know happened? Somebody did it, and then you say, okay, well, the evidence proves this person did it. Um, it's it's intriguing, and like you say, it's uh, you, sometimes you see and hear things you would probably rather not. The the point that is so interesting to me here, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy at every level. The premeditation. I mean, I, I'd like to believe that I'm not capable of killing anybody, but if somebody hurt a member of my family in a, in a rage in a violent rage, I can see myself doing it. I mean, I can easily see myself defending my wife or kids, uh, my, my belongings, my property. But, but to, to set out and, and, and conceive a plan and execute the plan that includes, I mean, in other words, you get in your car one morning and you make your mind up, today's the day that I kill my wife and kid. And for me to kill my wife and kid, I've got to get them to the house. And the and the um the feed room the the shed the kennels I think is what they were referred to I mean just imagine Rev the darkness of of that, can't that mindset I mean there's no way I mean but I think you can't imagine being angry and sure. turning violent as a result of that anger um but 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 wow I mean how do you wake up one morning deciding that today's the day that I lure my wife and kid to our hunting plantation or a hunting property and I execute them or kill them execution style. How do you process? I mean, what allows the brain to get in that dark a place? In another part of the interview that you can hear the full interview, of course, on the podcast when it releases, uh, the video's up on YouTube right now. The audio will all publish at 10 o'clock. But you talked about the spookiness of the video. You talked about the Snapchat video and hearing the voices, and of course now we know that just minutes after that recording was made, these murders took place, and how spooky that is for people that are seeing and hearing that. And he's speaking in the most normal tone imaginable. I mean, he's basically, you know, the Snapchat videos when you hear Alec in the background, you know, just talking like a father and husband would. But but moments later, I mean, the, the Attorney General, I mean, if you believe the jury's decision, moments later, execution style, killed his wife and kid i mean how do you get to a place that dark that, that that's once again that's not a matter of law to me i mean that that's more the human condition how do human beings i understand once again the anger 
in a human being that allows them to do something like that. But, but wow. I mean, to wake up one morning and to, to, to devise a plan and, and to, you know, have a shirt and another shirt and a shower and, you know, a, um, potentially a, uh, to choose the gun that you're going to do the, um, the, the execution style. Mur- I mean, that, that's just so weird. I mean, I, there are a lot of people out there that don't buy that he did it alone. I mean, despite what the jury said, I mean, I've got people in my world who said, I think he had a hand in it, but I don't think he was the only hand. I mean, I think there were other people involved in that. Does that really matter? I mean, in legal terms, it probably doesn't, but, but it does in our curiosity. Um, to, 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 to once again, entrap your wife and kid to be at a certain place at a certain time, knowing that your intent is to make sure they don't leave there alive. I mean, that's, that's bizarre to me. I mean, that's, that's way out there as far as I'm concerned. Now we had Alan Wilson, uh, yesterday, it'll be, uh, dis- dispersed today, published, published today. <laughs> uh, we'll have Will folks tomorrow. Will got real involved in the, the next, um, week, next week, yeah, next week. I'm sorry. Next Thursday, uh, we'll, we'll sit down with Will on Wednesday and then we'll, uh, we'll publish it on Thursday. But Will got real involved in that. I mean, Fitz News turned into a real journalistic endeavor by chasing down leads and and finding sources and following the story as a journalist um, would. And um, it's kind of interesting. The two people and and um, a lot of the interview with Alan yesterday began. Uh, our lives, our political lives, are kind of intertwined. And you thought that was a little bit interesting. Oh yeah. That to begin that's with, the, that's a little political intrigue to the interview. Well, I mean, Alan was the AG when when I did my dumb stuff, and um, and Alan was forced to kind of um deal with my issues of campaign finance. Uh, Alan and I got to know one another during the campaign trail and um and then he has to make a decision on what to do with me so to speak and um and and you know alan had some friends i had some friends um alan let it be known through his friends that he wanted to try to sit down with me i let it be known through some of my friends that i'd like to sit down with him and we actually at a a restaurant in florence uh kind of find a little private place and sat down for uh, a couple of hours and um we agreed to let bygones be bygones you know uh, resentment, bitterness, revenge, th- those things will fester. They'll consume your psyche. They'll turn into something, um, that normally doesn't end up very good. So, um, we touched on that, you know, a little bit at the beginning and, um, and you know, he's, I, I think he's done a good job. Uh, I think Alan admitted he's glad this case didn't come his way 10 years ago, uh, because he's not sure he would have been ready and equipped to maturely deal with the situation, uh, may have been the most, uh, the highest profile case. In the history of South Carolina judiciary, I, I don't know. I can't imagine a a more prominent case in the national um, limelight because that's everything. Um, I still go back to when at the beginning of this trial when I found out that crowd named houses. I just got real suspicious. I'm sorry. I mean, if families that name homes, I just I keep my eye on you a lot more than I do anyone else. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow. Schofield's is our sponsor today, and for turkey season, they have everything you'll need, like great deals on...